0: Episode seventy-three of Adult Music. Seventy-three, holy cow! <laughs> yeah, holy cow! And yeah. uh, ten thousand downloads, Mike. Yeah,
1: how about that? Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Ten, we hit the big ten thousand. We so we had five thousand two hundred seventy-five last year from February eleventh when we recorded the first one up until the end of the year. And now in half a year we've got the another five thousand. That's pretty cool. Yeah. We're building up. So that's thank great. you.
0: To all the listeners. Thank you, everybody, for downloading us. We've met in the past few months who've shared their audiences with us and helped us to grow. And we'll plan on keep, you know, just to keep on growing as we go along here.
1: We certainly plan to keep on going. So
0: there you go. Going, yeah. The more the merrier. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I'm really enjoying this, actually. All this music, it's kind of, it's improved my life. (laughs) My quality of my life is better. Keeps me off Twitter. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh no! You on Twitter? That sounds horrible. No, I'm
1: not on Twitter. Actually, <laughs> I've I, I was sensible enough to uh, you know. It's really funny. I was talking to a tech guy the other day, and I I don't have a smartphone. I have an iPod Touch, which does a lot of what a smartphone does, but mm. doesn't have a phone. But you can still use you know he still uses his phone. And every time I say this to people, they're all like um. They say, oh, you know, oh, you don't live in the modern world. Oh, you know, you're old fashioned, you know, all this stuff. And yet every tech guy I ever talked to says, congratulations, they're all happy for me, (laughs) like for staying off the, you're off the grid, you have a better life than us. They know what's going on, those tech guys, let me tell you. Yeah. A few of them have said said this to me already, and none of them has ever insulted me for it, unlike some of our, you know. (laughs) Non-tech civilian types, you know. Yes. They they, they know what evil they've wrought.
0: <laughs> well, you know, this for me, this podcast has, uh, it actually came true what I envisioned. Uh, it's been a way to navigate, you know, the universe of music that's become available through the internet right. and streaming. And uh, you can hear things from anywhere and all styles of music. And where do you start? There is that so that's a good thing yeah it helped me chart a course through that and uh, I'd like to share those things that I find every week with uh, anyone else who's interested and it's um, you know you can never even get to a, a small fraction of what's available but at least I have a guiding kind of principle hmm. to bring me through it and so that's been a lot of fun
1: right yeah I've been enjoying this too it gives me a chance to listen to all this music you know, that yeah. I've wanted to hear and I'm like oh, I gotta hear this this week and you know I have to make time for it instead of saying ah. Oh. You know, and it keeps me off the internet. That's also good.
0: <laughs> well, we're on the internet now, but uh, anyway. well,
1: yeah, but this is a different thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it keeps me off those uh, those websites. You know, that, uh, the interactive websites and things like that.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad we have a Where wholesome, one
1: interacts with the public.
0: <laughs> we have a wholesome outlet at adult music for you.
1: <laughs> yes, we have, and we have great fans too. <laughs>
0: Well, before we get into the uh, music that we'll have uh, this evening, I want to remind all of our listeners that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings we'll discuss. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer. It's our preferred streaming platform. You can also follow the podcast there. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. If you don't see the full description or links on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Now, come on over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to connect to from there. If you do enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. If you take a moment and give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, helps us get more listeners, and we'd appreciate that. You can also come over and check us out on Facebook. We've got a little page there posting different content during the week related to what's coming up on the podcast and other assorted musical tidbits. You can leave a comment or a message for us there. Or if you want to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com
1: this week what do, what do we have we have kind of a, a mixed bag this week now not a mixed bag quality wise i thought this was no. an exceptionally good week for listening we had some i think uh six very good to great albums
0: there's a lot of variety but a lot of uh intensity and interesting content in this program
1: right and the uh, first one now is um by a, one of one of our favorite composers that we only learned about because we do this podcast yeah, that's right <laughs> but yeah. I wouldn't even know who he was if we didn't do this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Ronitsky. Remember him? Anyway, this is an album called simply Symphonies. And this is by the Academy für Alte Musik Berlin. And it's on the Deutsche Harmonia Mundi label. Now, this one really caught my eye because it's um, Ronitsky scholar and friend of the podcast Daniel Bernardson He gets a thank you from the Ensemble, the Academy for Alta Musik Berlin for providing the music scores uh, but he's not apparently not directly involved in this he didn't write the booklet notes and um, I think they uh, that that's it, He I think hmm. he just provided the scores and that's it this is a pretty recent recording, it was recorded uh, January 2021 and released um, just about a month ago oh, that's a few months now Maybe uh, three months ago or so, we've been wait. I've been waiting for my CD to arrive, and boy, am I glad it did! Yeah. Um, if you get this on a CD, I recommend you do. Um, it. The set contains two CDs, and each CD has two works. They're both fairly short, about forty-five minutes each, but it's kind of a nice, comfortable little program.
0: Yeah, and I want to let listeners know if you're a hi-fi person, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is one. Uh, Or if you're going to buy a hi-fi speakers or something, this is one you want to take along uh, to test out your system's capabilities because this is one of the most dynamic recordings I've heard in a long time.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And I have to say, that's unusual for music in the classical era, the classical era being the age of uh, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. Hmm. Um, Usually they're they're dynamic, but not like this one. Boy, there's some serious... Booming timf- timpani and bass yeah. drums and all kinds of stuff on this. I'll I'll walk you through it so you know where to to listen on that um, link that we're going to provide on this podcast. Um, first of all, I just want to before we start talking about the music, I want to mention the album cover. Um, it's a oh, yeah. it's a flat landscape at the bottom and the seventy five percent of the uh, f- the I guess it's a painting. Is it? I guess let me get a look at this. And it could be a photograph I can't really tell, or some sort of computer generated yeah, image CG or something thing. yeah um it's a f- it's so it's got this kind of green landscape with clouds and then seventy five percent of the picture is taken up by these ominous dark uh black clouds, and uh it's very fitting for this album <laughs> because there yeah. is a piece on it called the, the, tempest. the tempest and uh it's pretty as raucous as this cover is foreboding, <laughs> okay, we'll hear that later okay it's 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 a good uh, good choice of artwork for this particular album okay so let's start from the beginning we uh start with an overture this is the overture to oberon könig der elfen king of the elves all right and uh this is a oberon was uh a uh, fairy tale opera sort of like uh, Mo- mozart's magic flute which was also a fairy tale opera and it relied heavily on stage machinery to make an impression there's a little bit of that in Magic Food hmm. as well. Um, Renitsky's Oberon was popular until 1826. It was written around 17. Ah, I didn't write the year. But around the, the late 1797 or 1805, I can't remember now. I can look it up. But um, it was um, popular until 1826, which is when Carl um, uh, Maria von Weber wrote his Oberon and uh, Renitsky's was sadly forgotten uh from this overture it sounds pretty great i want to look at this hold on oberon was composed in 17 is that 89 1799 i can't really tell it, it looks like 89 all right um 1789 okay so mozart's still alive when this comes out he only had two more years to go okay so this starts out it's a really as most um of these type of um overtures are it's um very charming it's uh, Got triplets, pastoral dance melody, opening the work, da 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 da, da you know, that, that rhythm. It's light and charming, beautifully taken by the ensemble, who seem right in the idiom. The strings are very upfront and present in the recording. Uh, everything registers clearly, as Russ mentioned. This is a pretty uh, dynamic recording, beautifully, clearly recorded. Um, th- I think the recording takes away some of the vile... the, the Low strings sound pretty warm. The violins are a little um, not as warm. They're also vibrato so they're just kind of the, – the the bows are being dragged across the strings. Not a bad thing and probably appropriate for the, uh, the period, but um, they get a lot of clarity and bright sound. Maybe you might say at the expense of warmth. It didn't bother me, though. Um, mm. I just noticed it here. And I don't think it's a problem as the album goes on. Um, maybe my ears adjusted, though. All in all, though, it sounds great. I like that we get a sense of the timpani's position in the orchestra towards the back. Remember where that is? Because you're going to hear it a lot on this <laughs> album. <laughs> the timpani are the big kettle drums. They're tunable, in case that's what makes them special. Um, uh, it registers strongly in this piece as well. Um, there's some striking orchestration, as we've come to um, expect from Ranisky, from the uh We've, we've done five recordings so far, the four uh, on Naxos and then the oboe one. Right. Um, so this is the sixth one we're talking about. Um, not in that series, not in the, uh, the Renitsky Project series, um, on Naxos. Um, so striking orchestration, um, with individual instruments from different sections blending together for some surprising timbral combinations. For the era, they were surprising. I mean, maybe for the 20th century, not so much, but, uh, enjoy that. Okay. So we have this very charming opening and boy, are we going <laughs> to get some serious sonics from now on. Um, there are three, the next three works are all symphonies and the uh, first one, and this ends, um, CD one is symphony in C minor, opus 31, subtitled Grand symphony characteristique. Pour la paix avec la république française <laughs> which means uh, grand symphony grand characteristic symphony for peace with the Ro- with the french republic um so the um french revolution had happened uh not long before this about a decade before this um um rec- you know this uh piece was written this piece was written in 1797 so this is still a pretty uh recent memory I mean you know yeah. it was it was closer to them than the uh the uh, World Trade Center is to us now
0: it must have been unusual at the time to have a movement this long <laughs> <laughs> to start out your uh, symphony with.
1: Yeah, you tend to think of Beethoven like the Eroica, as being the first big expanded work, the third symphony by Beethoven. But no, this is, um, it's not a very long symphony, but the first movement is about 15 minutes long. Yeah. Not, needless to say, they're, they're all taken. But uh, still, there's a lot of material here. Okay, all of these um, movements have titles. And the first one is the Revolution, March of the English, March of the Austrians and Prussians. And this um begins with a slow trudging intro. Violins are absolutely without vibrato. They sound a bit nasal, like kinda like eh. and just after a minute and ten seconds, the main faster theme begins. It's similar to the intro, but far more tumultuous. Oh, that's gonna be a word to uh <laughs> put to a lot of the music in the symphony. The tippity get a lot of use. The themes are suitably aggressive in this performance, and this is this is a big, big difference. Um, from what we heard if you remember back in episode 10 because a lot of people have heard that one i sort of m- complained about the uh the uh the tempo or, or something like mm-hmm. that of the uh the, the recording we heard there that was the first one we ever heard uh this one is the exact opposite of that and it's just full speed ahead it's it sounds kind of reckless but this uh, ensemble is, is seems really comfortable playing at these mm-hmm. sort of uh, fast um speeds they get a great recording as well um, I don't want to knock the Radinsky project because I really loved, um, the third and the fourth, especially the third volume in that set. And I still highly recommend that. You hear this, but I'd say this album is a must here, but I'll get to that at the end. This is really fantastic playing. Um, the themes are suitably aggressive in this performance. And, um, I liked the rapidly repeating string notes at the four minute and 20 second mark. You could sample that. Um, yeah, by the way, my timings are sometimes a little off because I'm usually looking at the, timer than going back i don't actually stop the recording when i'm listening to it uh what i'm yeah and then there's the this charming kind of march from 4:45 onward um it's a quick march i have to say um, pacing is excellent throughout this 15 minute movement and climaxes are led up to with maximum impact there's some sudden activity in the coda at the 12 minute 40 second mark or so and has a big ending taken with lots of energy very satisfying movement uh not a dull moment it's all really well played the second movement is the fate and death of louis the 16th who was um guillotined by the revolutionaries in the um the french revolution um this movement is a rather song-like in its opening and again the strings are absolutely without vibrato that's just the way this performance is going to go throughout this whole album um The brass and winds register exceptionally well and with clarity. And the clarinet gets a nice solo at a minute and 15 Mm -hmm. seconds. And you want to notice that because a clarinet solo in a symphonic work is very unusual for this period. And, in fact, Ronitsky does a lot of unusual things, especially in the winds. He seems – we've mentioned this before. He seems to really favor, like, wind harmonies. Mm -hmm. But a a clarinet, it was a new instrument at the time and uh, really unusual to hear it just standing out like that. It's a really bold move. There's a rhythm change at a minute and 40 seconds, and by 3 minutes and 17 seconds, we're hearing some string interruptions to the melody that grow more and more turbulent. So it looks like Louis the 16th, uh days are numbered, or maybe even hours at this point. Mm-hmm. Some gorgeous reed instruments just past the fifth minute. The music has become a bit of a funeral march rhythm at this point. Um, it's darkening considerably. Uh, The dark part comes in the harmony, really, but not in the rhythm, which is still really (laughs) kind of springy and full speed ahead. Um, By the end, it's coming across as a light funeral march with the harmony having darkened considerably. And um, that's how that um, ends. I guess his death is portrayed in this uh, movement, but I didn't really catch that. I'll have to hear it again. And this is an album I will listen to again and again, I think. Third movement, March of the English, March of the Allies, the tumult of a battle. Here we go, folks. Um, This is a cheerful march at a pretty high tempo. And then, all of a sudden, this is the big moment you were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Earlier. (laughs) There's a gigantic, sudden, very loud, very present timpani hit at about the 1 minute and 56 second mark. You might want to prepare yourself for this, but... Definitely give that a listen. It's a complete surprise. Uh, the dynamic—it's—it's it's a complete contrast with the dynamics of what ha- was coming before, which seems really cheerful, and it sharply just leaps out of the speakers like just some Amazing. something like jumped out of your TV set into the yeah. room with you. You know, it was like you know, it's like, when, like if you're watching like Wild Kingdom and some tiger jumped <laughs> out of your TV set and was like yeah. you know pawing your chest. That's kind of what this felt like to me. It was really amazing. Uh, great Sonics here. Definitely take this with your to, to test your stereo. Uh, this whole section suddenly gets tumultuous with rushing strings and booming timpani. Oh. If you have a you're in for a real treat if you have a subwoofer. Let me just say that. <laughs> you don't even need one though. This will still come out on the speakers. It's really like um, powerful. The tumult clears as the timpani keeps firing off shots and we get a rush to the ending of the movement. The fourth movement is uh, titled The Prospects of Peace Rejoicing the Achievement of Peace, boy, we should probably play this. This is on, almost like an early um uh Ode to Joy by Beethoven, mm. right? It doesn't have any singing in it, of course, but uh, the idea, I mean um, what I'm saying is and this starts out with a triplet melody again, and this time it's uh, serenely rocking. I guess this is Reniski's um portrayal of peace. At two minutes and five seconds, we get a loud, vast chord that registers beautifully and acts as the beginning of a new section. Uh, there was an introduction in this. With rushing strings and a very present timpani. When I say very present, I mean very loud. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all high spirits from here on out. And the ensemble does well to put that across with excellent pacing and dynamics. They, they sound really enthusiastic about playing this they music. Um, the... It, it's it's just a joy to listen to this album. Um, there's an interesting kind of smeared chord at eight minutes and 45 seconds, intentionally, I'd say. And then again at eight minutes and 53 seconds to slam on the brakes momentarily.
0: That's exactly what I wrote, too. Yeah, you wrote on slamming the on the brakes. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah it's just kind of like, it did, it kind of, I felt that lurching sort of like when you're in the car and somebody yep. slams the brakes, you're leaning forward. <laughs> yeah. I almost felt that feeling listening to this. All right, that's at eight minutes and fifty-three seconds. If you want to check out what we're talking about in the uh, fourth movement, CD one of the uh, the the uh, the uh, I don't know how, how I can nickname this the Grand Symphony Characteristic. Let's say call it that. The music picks up momentum and rushes to the end in what has been an exhilarating movement and really an exhilarating piece of music. This yeah. the whole four movements of this. This should turn everyone on to Rachmaninoff's music who hears it. Um, it's it's uplifting and it's a it's a, just a fantastic performance and an st- extremely dynamic recording. Very satisfied at this point, but wait, there's more. <laughs> CD two. There's still two more symphonies to go. There's the symphony in D major is next Opus thirty six, composed in, or published at least in seventeen ninety nine. Um the two middle movements, um it says here, betray nationalistic traits, and when this was published in eighteen hundred, it was written in seventeen ninety nine, published in eighteen hundred, the work was advertised as being for the wedding of Archduke Joseph of Austria, Palatine of Hungary, and Grand Duchess Alexandra. Pavlovna, I'm guessing she's Russian from that name, um, so hence the this, the Russian theme in the second movement. Anyway, this starts out, the first movement is Adagio and then Allegro Molto, so there's an introduction and then a more spirited main section. Although the Adagio is energetic, uh, the timpani are almost whipping the rhythm forward, the contrast with the second intro theme at 30 seconds is extreme. Is coquettish, and gentle. I'm really wondering if these two themes don't represent the uh, the married the two cup co- the mm. couple getting married. Could be because um, yeah. the uh, first one is very masculine and booming in the timpani, and the second one is just the exact opposite, gentle, um, and a little teasing. As I said, coquettish. Um, think about that when you hear mm. this. Then we get the stormy first theme back. I, I bet I wonder if Daniel will write to us and, <laughs> and let us know no. if I've got that one right. He's probably
0: given up on when we were going to discuss this recording.
1: <laughs> Maybe yeah, we took a long time to get to this because I've been waiting for the CD. That's why it's my fault. I'm really stubborn about these things. I really want to hear them on the in my stereo on the CD. Okay. Then we get the uh, stormy first theme back, uh, sounding like a horse being whipped through sleeting rain. <laughs> Again, this is uh, the the more masculine theme. At a minute and 28 seconds, we arrive at the main theme of the main section, which is cheerful and amiable. I enjoyed the wind comments on the string rhythm at two minutes and onwards. Um, Great wind writing in this movement. I've also noticed how the lower reeds, like the bassoon, are playing rapid repeated notes. uh, And given the tempo taken here, this is really fast, but it Mm. feels natural. Again, another hat tip to the uh the uh virtuosity of the uh, musicians in this ensemble it's really fantastic at three minutes and thirty five seconds we get a repeat of the main section's opening material and listen to the bassoon's uh r- really quiet bass line at uh four minutes and forty three seconds He does this impressive quick staccato descent it just r- really caught my ear um easy to pick out of the uh the um texture because of the fantastically clean recording. At 5 minutes and 47 seconds, the development begins with a surprising dark and downward twist to the harmony. There are some explosive moments here, all punctuated by aggressive timpani. Uh, the ensemble is putting across enthusiastic energy throughout, and they get the idiom too, pointing the rhythms so they dance properly. You, you know when there's a dance rhythm happening mm. because they they just make those rhythms register you kind of know where the the first bar is where the first beat is the reca- the recapitulation flies by and there's a great coda to end this very enthusiastic and uplifting performance of the first movement uh the second movement is simply titled russe which is um french for russian uh it's um got three sections allegretto minore and maggiore the theme is a rather typical well the first theme is a minuet um It's pretty typical, um, but uh, don't worry. The excitement's coming. (laughs) At 37 seconds, there's a surprising uplift and expansion of the theme, which the ensemble underlines with a subtle crescendo and heightening of tension. At a minute to 19 seconds, we get to the Russian part, complete with sleigh bells. Sleigh
0: bells, yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that was a big surprise, too. Didn't see that. Didn't expect that either. Uh, There's a gentler, more lightly scored trio between Russian and sleigh bell themes. We pass, um, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. They are both the same theme. Russian and sleigh, there's a sleigh bell accompanying the Russian theme. We pass through the themes again and get a high-speed approach to the final triumphant chords. Third movement is a Polonaise, which would, um, uh, indicate Poland. And, um, this, uh, maybe the Archduke is, he's, I don't know. It says he's, uh, Archduke of, um, Austria, but I don't know the Austrian Republic, I I don't know, it was the the Habsburg Empire was pretty big at the time. Anyway, um, the Polonaise, it starts out with a rustic feel with a rushing stream of melody and a strongly rhythmically marked dance, probably the Polonaise theme, emerges at about 50 seconds and we're right back to the opening material. The trio section chugs along with light orchestration, very appealing, and we get a repeat of the Polonaise material from the beginning and we're done. Fourth movement. Finale, and this is marked Largo, and then Rondo Allegro. So the Largo is going to be the introduction. And a Rondo, of course, is a theme that's going to keep coming back in between sections. So winds introduced the first theme, and that's unusual enough. Mm. Um, it almost sounds chorale-like. It's not quite, because it's not chord, chord, chord. But it's got this constantly drifting chord-like harmony to it. The middle 8 of the theme dances a bit, listen at about 45 seconds to hear that. And then there's a trumpet fanfare at a minute and 15 seconds and the rondo begins. I rather like the way they signaled the change of mm-hmm. <laughs> section with the the trumpet fanfare, like uh, like a big announcement. Um, this has been a sharply, this, uh, the main theme, sorry, the rondo has a sharply contoured and very fast dance rhythm to it. It's in 6-8. Uh, Notice again, Ranitzky's inventive use of the winds throughout the movement. I'm noticing the flute from 2 minutes and 45 seconds on, and the other winds providing harmony. A gently flowing episode comes at 3 minutes and 20 seconds, with clever and even witty harmony. It really made me smile. Um, Big triumphant approach to the ending, and an endearing movement excitingly performed, and indeed the entire um, symphony is really endearing. Um this must have been quite a happy event if you heard it work like this at mm. it. Um I doubt it was performed this well though because this really <laughs> does sound spectacular, really cheerful. Okay, and then I guess you could argue that this next piece is the Pièce de Résistance, although you could also say that about the Grand Symphony on the first disc. Mm. This is really the the I think the highlight of the album because of the um I mentioned the um the album cover. Uh, symphony in D minor, La Tempesta. So we know this word Tempesta from uh, Vivaldi's concerto of the same name, uh, which depicts a storm.
0: Yeah, and we heard this one before. On And uh, we heard this one too. Yeah. It's the yeah. only one. The other two have not been released on the uh, previous recordings. So.
1: I guess we'll be getting them soon, though. Let's hope anyway. Yeah. Anyway, this particular one was unpublished in Ranitsky's Lifetime. Um, Renitsky incidentally has 45 symphonies and, uh, that, that have been identified so far. I mean, you know, scholarship goes on. Uh, only 23 were published in his lifetime. 22 remain unpublished. And this is one of the unpublished ones. And who knows why? Because this is really thrilling. This, this is, uh, I could see why they chose to put the, um, make the album cover after this, Mm -hmm. because this is a pretty powerful work. And it's vividly rendered here. The first movement, Vivace, the theme is laid out in fragmentary blocks of melody um, that sort of remind you of um, independent storm rumblings. One rumble here, one rumble there. And once the theme starts moving, the uh, rumblings connect and a sense of menace and of excitement, of course, is projected. Again, all appealing themes in this and figuration is all appealing too. There are a few gentle stops, for example, at... uh, Four minutes and three seconds, where we get brief respite,s um, but the chaotic swirling material keeps coming back. I'm very impressed by the ensemble's throwing caution to the winds, and more so, I think, here than in the other works. Although, there too, I'm really re- engage- I, they really engage me in this particular work. This is especially true in the sixth minute of the first movement of the Tempesta. Uh, Symphony, where speed and aggression create an exciting atmosphere. The final cadence is deeply satisfying after the full speed approach taken to it." The second movement is an adagio. Um, Phrases are broken into parts here again, but this movement is slow, quiet, and rhythmically flowing. I love the way the appogitories are stretched out to build a bit more tension before the uh target chord in this first section, you want to listen to the end of each second phrase of the theme for this It happens every time it's 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 kind of cool like it doesn't the the chord is the dissonance is mm. stretched out and then sinks into the into the chord and it it's done in an appealing way in that you so that you really notice it on this uh, in this performance. A second section starts at about 2 minutes and 13 seconds. There's gorgeous wind riding at 3 minutes and 15 seconds onwards, as we've come to expect from Ranisky. It's a lovely movement. And this is a only a three-movement um, symphony, and we get to the finale called La Tempesta, Allegro con Fuoco. <laughs> Fast with fire. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. There's a wind machine in this movement. Um, the score also asks for lightning strikes to be followed by silent rain. And I think we heard a little bit of that silent main later on in Beethoven's, um, pastoral symphony as well mm-hmm. in his, um, tempest just before the tempest begins in his, um, symphony. Um, we start this with faint murmurings of a distant storm in the strings. Then there's a real burst of volume at 17 seconds to give a sudden eruption of thunder. Uh, seriously, turn your stereo loud to give yourself the full impact of this. Uh, the noise at 55 seconds is very impressive with thunder sheets, timpani, and the 1 minute and 10 seconds on we even hear a wind machine. I'm pretty amazed at the deepness of tone the bass drum gets in this recording. The mm-hmm. ensemble is going for energy. I, I said energy over precision, but they manage both. I mean, these—they're mm-hmm. not—they never go out of key, or, or at a—you know, no one really goes out of tune. It's pretty remarkable. Once the thunder clears at two minutes and fifteen seconds, we get a light, delightful pattering theme. That's probably the silent rain, with some lovely wind, mostly flute fills in between phrases the ensemble manages a lot of subtlety in the movement despite the energy i'm thinking of the creeping bass after three minutes and 30 seconds very subtle which disappears and doesn't erupt into anything it's really kind of cool um it's a bass drum too it's like does a little rumble and then just disappears um you really kind of only sense its presence more than hear it at seven minutes and 27 seconds there's what seems like a final cadence but no there's still about a good three to five minutes to go. Uh, A pause follows and we get some serene material to bring us to the actual cheerful final cadence. Um, So I guess the storm cleared up for the ending. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, And I just have to say this, the fact that this work wasn't published must have been, it was a real loss for listeners of the time and really for everybody up from that time, up until uh, this album was released. Mm -hmm. Although we did hear this on the Naxos recording too of course a great performance helps and we get that here I'm convinced that if all classical music had this kind of energy it would have a wider audience I found this work irresistible and it might be the only classical piece you ever play from the classical era that will have the neighbors complaining because it's, <laughs> it's too loud Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you make sure you uh, make that happen when <laughs> you
0: listen to this because they need to hear this too yeah great performances yeah yeah Really
1: enthusiastic, uh, virtuosic. Uh, the album is energetically performed and guaranteed to bring a smile really all the way through. The very last symphony is thrilling in composition and performance with some real wow inducing dynamics. <laughs> like, whoa, oh, you know, just kind of the kind of thing that'll blow you away. I'm going to be listening to this album a lot and this will probably go. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure this will go on my best of list at the end of the year Uh, the performers really go for broke in their aggressive approach and they come up winners this is an exciting album and this is music that uh russ and i discovered this year and really are happy that we did so it's um it's it's very exciting it's something someone we should be listening to it's written in the classical era and there's a lot more of it to come so uh we can we can get really excited about that as well
0: yeah, this is a fabulous recording full of dynamic contrasts, enthusiastic performances. If your image of classical music is kind of of a daintier nature, then this will undo that because <laughs> <laughs> this uh, is explosive. It's just you can pick up on the enthusiasm of the ensemble. They're really having a great time with this. And we've heard on uh, the previous recordings we've done on the podcast, the La Tempesta before, this was an you know, excellent performance. Here as well. Uh, of the other two, I really enjoyed the C, C minor symphony. I thought that was uh, fabulous. It, it's, it's a very impressive performance, and that final movement is just killer. Like I said. So I think, uh, yeah, I hope this turns on a lot more people uh, who haven't heard Ronitsky before. I really hope we can hear as many of these symphonies as possible, and they start to become more widely recorded because it's really exciting music. And you get a more, the more we listen, the more I get a sense of what Ronitsky's talents were, kind of experimenting with different instrumentation. He's really great with uh, uh, wind themes, really using all the colors of the orchestra and lots of little tricks of melody, defying your expectations with little surprises, uh, Mm -hmm. slamming on the brakes, as we said, changing up, turning on a moment's notice little harmonic kind of surprising little things thrown in there too. It's very exciting music, holds your attention well. And here you have this great performance that just adds enthusiasm to the great composing and wonderful recording that brings out all the subtleties and uh, has one of the widest dynamic ranges I've heard on anything in a while. So
1: Yeah, th- this ensemble seems to pull like every, like little detail out of every work. It's, it's just there, just all of these um things that draw the ear in, it's just fantastic. And uh, what you said about, uh, you know, if you think of classical music as dainty, I sometimes wonder if people say, oh, Michael likes, Mike likes classical music, he's like a... He's soft. But I'm like, mm-hmm. no, this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of music that I want to hear. Okay? Yeah. It's it's really exciting. It's uplifting. It's just fantastic. Give I this think- a listen. This is what classical music is in my ears.
0: A lot of people have that idea that things didn't become bombastic until mm-hmm. in the romantic era. Like after after Beethoven and after that, then you're going to get kind of more. Bombastic mm. things, but no, this is uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, explosive <laughs> right here.
1: Right, and I got to say, the Tempest is a lot, a much better work than uh, or the um, the uh, C minor Symphony, the Grand Symphony, Characteristique, which is kind of like a military sort mm. of symphony, is far more exciting than um, Beethoven's. Um, what, what was what's the one I'm thinking about? The one about the uh, the, uh, the Wellington's Victory, that one, mm. which really is not good (laughs) it's just kind of it it's because it doesn't have any of beethoven's like um you know compositional like fingerprints in it it's just Mm. like a a show piece that was meant to be bombastic and it sounds but this particular work holds together really well it's got you know um ranitsky's sort of holds together it's got all the you know the um the, f- the whole form of the piece, the sections all hold together, or they balance out harmonically, that sort of thing. So it's a very satisfying work as well as just being <laughs> really loud and yeah. exciting. Yeah, it's great. It's really great. Okay, so that's highly, highly recommended. Okay, let's move on. So my second... I don't really have a kind of theme this week. Um, The second uh, recording is um, by a composer that we both like a lot, Yihani uh, Rautavara, a 20th century composer who died... Um, about five years ago now. I'd say mm. the years are passing too uh, too fast for me. I don't really know anymore But um, this is um, called Lost Landscapes. The album works for violin and orchestra the violinist is uh, the Dutch violinist um, Simone Lamsma and she's playing with the Malamu Symphony Orchestra conducted by Robert Trevino who is a uh, Mexican-American and grew up near Forthworth, Worth, Texas. He's mm-hmm. the conductor. This is on the Undine label. Now, Trevino, that name, if you listen to the podcast, that might ring a bell because we last heard him on the uh, America Scapes album uh, in the winter. We did mm-hmm. that one. Uh, we talked about that. Uh, it was an intriguing program of little-known works in the USA by Carl Ruggles, Henry Cowell, uh, Loeffler, I forgot his first name, and Howard Hansen. Um so we we get him again this was the one that Ruggles said about uh, your dissonance dissonance what do you say about it take your dissonance like a man (laughs) take your dissonance like a man that should have been the name of the podcast (laughs) you could do that yeah yeah I'm not here, though. This is, this is not really much. Mm. There are dissonant moments here, but it's not the kind that Ruggles is talking about. Okay. So the theme of this, um, particular album, uh, these works were all written after the year 2004. So it's really the last 12 years of Rautavada's life. I guess he died in 2016. I guess I could check that. I got the CD right here. Um, indeed, he died in 2016. Um, so. In 2004 it was a key year for Rautavada. He suffered a life-threatening event, an aortic dissection, which is the rupturing of the walls of the largest blood vessel in the body. Uh, he mm-hmm. had emergency surgery and was saved from a near-death experience. Um, now I want to mention he wrote his eighth symphony and last symphony in 1999, I believe it was, uh, or 1990. It was anyway before the 21st century began. So this really did kind of, stop him from writing really big works, and he he wrote a lot of these kind of shorter works after this. Um, he was in intensive care for six months and emerged to write a considerable body of music in the last ten years of his life, but like I said, they were mostly shorter works. All right, so on this album, the first work we hear is the Fantasia for Violin and Orchestra, written in 2015. Um, I had never heard this work before, this is new for me, so I'm always happy to hear a new. Sorry, Rautavara work. This one was written for Anne Akiko Myers. Um, the overall mood is one of pastoral serenity, according to the booklet notes, with some somber tones. And then it says, towards the end, the ascending melodic lines propelled the music towards light and transcendence, which I think was a something that Rautavara was trying to uh, communicate a lot. Um, this, has, this is a good, spacious sounding recording, maybe a little thin on the low end, but very clear. Uh Rautavada was writing orchestra work like this for some time, but what makes this take off is the violin's first melody. It's sweet and heartfelt, and really drew my ear. Uh, Lamsma works well with the dynamics and tone of her instrument to make the deep emotion of this work come across. Um, this uh, violin is constantly playing once it makes its entry, Uh, I'm impressed by Lamsma's playing in this work. She's magnetic, and obviously a fan of Rao music. Trevino's conducting is sensitive throughout as well. Overall, the orchestra never gets very loud, even at fortes, and pianissimi are very quiet, leaving lots of space for the soloist. Uh, The loudest part of the piece is at uh, 6 minutes and 53 seconds, and it retains its uh, clarity, with the violin always audible and placed up front, but not to the extent the extent that it's always in the spotlight. Trevino handles the signature Rautavata writing, which is arpeggiated shifting string backgrounds, with character. It's got an interesting ending, this piece, the Fantasia, with two big orchestral string chords. This is as good a performance of this work as you'll hear. Um, The violinist has real presence, as does the orchestra. We get a little interlude next, the second track, In the Beginning. This is for orchestra. Um, written in 2015, and this is Rautavada's last fully completed work. Um, It's got those shifting string backgrounds, those uh, that are familiar from a lot of his uh, work from um, uh, 1994 on, really, because he used it most notably in his 7th symphony. Um, It has florid woodwind arabesques, brass chorales, humming runs on the strings, freely combined triads, steadily progressing melodic lines built on octatonic scales that Rautavara often used. Okay, it's a brief piece. It's only five minutes long about. It has a rumbling beginning with those shifting strings following. The rushing strings at a minute and 31 seconds get good presence, as do the strident chords and wash of string melody at two minutes that became typical of Rautavara's writing in his later years. I like the way Trevino shapes these lines There's a sort of urgency to it that you don't often get from Rautavara's music. Many conductors will just let these lines float like they're clouds of sound. And I like the way Rautavara's sections sort of move like floating clouds, one set of sounds drifting apart to reveal the sound of the other, hidden sounds. This ends suddenly on a big, surprising, quick chord. Okay, so we're off to a really good start. And then we get to the Douce Sérénade for violin and orchestra, Written in 2016, and uh, Rautavaara did not complete these before he died, and they were completed by the composer Kalevi Aho, who is a Finnish composer, um, in 2018, or maybe they were finished in 2016, or and then revised by him. Into, but they weren't finished by Rautavaara. Okay. Now we heard these before, these, uh, Hilary Hahn played these on her Paris mm. album and we talked about that and we enjoyed these, those performances a lot. Now he, the problem here is that uh, I think Hilary Hahn has the, uh, the better, not just performance, but also the better recording. So those works register for me really, um, in a big way on that album, which is called Paris if you want to look it up. And here, um, this one isn't quite in the same league. Um, Ratavar is contemplating his past in these works. He quotes um, some of his own earlier works. Um, So if you know his music, you'll recognize that. So the first um, of these is called Serenade pour mon amour, Serenade for my love, which I guess would be his wife. Um, There's a residedness to the strings at the beginning of this work. The the solo violin is in there and really doesn't stand out at the beginning. Hans solo on Hilary Hahn's recording, her solo instrument stands out a lot more, and she's got a big sound anyway um Hilary Hahn, so she she's always audible. Uh, the sound here is a little two-dimensional, but not bad. uh is recorded here like she's part of the orchestra. uh The line stands out enough in the writing to make her audible um but she it sounds like she's kind of sitting in with the strings or something is the for the dynamic the, the, it's the compos- the composing that makes her line stand out more than her um placement the string figures drift like passing clouds typical of Rautavaara there's a resigned sadness to this interpretation of the work and it's an appealing performance the second of the du serenade is called Serenade pour, ma, pour la vie, for life, okay. This one includes the first one only had strings. This one includes woodwinds and horns and seems to continue on from the previous one with its undulating strings in the orchestra. The violin comes in more distinct in its entry here and we hear an English horn, a dramatic change from all the strings, commenting on the violin line or accompanying it at times. The character of this um, work is only slightly different from the previous one. It's not as resigned, indicating maybe a quiet joy. There are some nice moments when the orchestra pulls back its volume with the violin, which gives an emotional tug. I like when that happens, when the volume suddenly goes down and sort of pulls something out of you. The way the orchestral makeup behind the violin is constantly changing is very appealing. Like the violin is soloing in front of some kind of sonic psychedelic backdrop. There's a sudden change of rhythm just 30 seconds before the end. A chugging rhythm that leads to an inconclusive sounding chord. Alright, so I like the violin sound in this one better. It didn't like it. it never gets lost in the first of the serenades, but um, because it's all string work and the viol the soloist is not really placed very far forward. She kind of sounds like she's in with the uh, the others but in this, she stands out more in the second of the seren the serenades okay the last work and the work that this album is um named after is called lost landscapes uh this was uh, originally a work for violin and piano and uh here it's been orchestrated it was written in 2005 and, and orchestrated 10 years later in 2015 um this work was written originally for Midori, the Japanese violinist. And um, the landscapes that are listed as the um, four movement titles are places that were important to Rautavara during his, and this is a quotations years of pilgrimage, studying abroad. Um, the first um, movement is called Tanglewood, and it refers to the summer courses where uh, Rautavara studied with Roger Sessions and Aaron Copeland in 1955. In 1956, and he, he was there on a scholarship awarded by Jean Sibelius himself. Wow. How about that? Yeah, some historic figures there. Anyway, it's pretty interesting hearing this with an orchestral backdrop. Um, the beginning is all strings, and in this guise, it rather resembles the previous works. The piano's percussive element is gone, replaced by the string's glossiness and smoothness, and it really changes the character of the work. Uh, the violin melody soars towards the stratosphere and gently descends. Muratavara's characteristic long notes and lines dominate the solo violin line. It's nicely played and the violin stands out well in this performance, slightly forward but blending well with the orchestra. The piece drifts towards its ending and into the sky. The second movement is called um, Ascona, it which is in Switzerland on Lago Maggiore. And here, Rautavada studied 12-tone technique with Vladimir Vogel, but don't worry, this is not a 12-tone movement. <laughs> a real change of character here, and a welcome one on this album, which has been very serene. I want to mention, if you like really serene, calming music, this is a good album for you to hear. Um, because It's really all like that, until we get to this point. The beginning is dramatic, with some dissonance in the accompaniment. Um, Afterwards a quick winding figure in the violin is accompanied by hushed rising and falling strings which crescendo and lead to a violin cadenza-like section where the violin plays by itself. The strings quietly come back in afterwards for a quieter section uh, which is more ethereal and features muted strings under the ethereal sounding violin. There's a bit of drama and passion in this. Listen at 4 minutes and 55 seconds and onwards for that there's some rushing scales after six minutes and thirty seconds that lead to the tranquil ending. Uh, the violin stands out very well in this movement and plays with emotion. Uh, the third movement is called Rainer Gasse Eleven, how <laughs> I say eleven in German, Vienna. Okay, the address—that's the address of the Palais Schönberg, which is an 18th-century Baroque edifice in Vienna, where Rautavada lodged for a while in spring 1955. At the time, it was the uh, domicile of an impoverished princely family who rented out its unused rooms to foreign music students. How cool is that? (laughs) Anyway, for Rautavada, this surreal environment embodied the dying embers of a bygone era and a lost culture. I I could imagine. The music is meditative and out of time. It starts with familiar undulating strings, only they're in the lower end. The violin solo is hushed and quiet, only discernible by the higher frequency of its material. It soon stands out well. Um, The undulating strings have a sense of ruins, of unpopulated stillness, with the living violin walking through them. Think about, like, walking through an abandoned school. Yeah, you have all this kind of, like, feeling... It doesn't feel like an empty place. you know. It, it just feels like there's some kind of energy still in there, but it's just empty. And that's kind of what the feeling that this uh, piece is putting across. Um, the violin solo draws out the orchestral accompaniment as the piece goes on. It gets more lively, rising to higher frequencies at the violin's coaxing. Uh, ends with the violin quietly playing a stratospheric note as the muted strings do a natural fade. And the last, the fourth movement is... West 23rd Street, New York, which was Rautavar's address in New York in winter 1955 to 1956. Um, and it's an evocation of the throbbing mudva of the city. This has rushing figuration in the strings, accompanying a virtuosic rushing violin line, evocative of the hurry of New York City. There's a lot of energy generated by the violin line. It's a pretty short movement, and it reaches the end with a rush to the final note. So, to sum up, I really enjoyed Simone Lamsma's playing in the Fantasia, but by the time we get to the two serenades, the album's material becomes a bit wearing. Uh, Rao used a lot of similar orchestral figuration in his later works, and grouping them all together here make one work sort of run into the other. Um, I think listeners would be better off hearing Hilary Hahn play the serenades, but Simone Lamsma plays passionately throughout the album, and also sounds great in Lost Landscapes. Um, I'd say this one is for Rautavara fans only, or for someone who just likes a tranquil backdrop to what they're doing. Um, yeah, there's people who enjoy the tranquil sound of Rautavara's late works. I think there are other Rautavara works that are more worth hearing, but, you know, this is a, um, this is a, this is a new recording, so wanted to hear that. Anyway, I do enjoy his music, and I was happy to have heard this.
0: Yeah, you are the one who turned me on to Rachmaninoff as a composer and I really enjoy his symphonies. Yes. And especially the 7th and 8th. Now listening to this, what I realized the elements I enjoy of his composing are his interesting use of harmony, mm-hmm. but along with that, the colors of the orchestra, the sort of timbre palettes, you know, and combinations right. that he gets, and that's where I realized things started to go missing for me on this recording, mm. you know, focusing on the violin. I liked the Fantasia, and I especially liked the theme and the violin, And I, but I liked it in contrast with the backing uh, woodwind lines uh, in there. So yeah, I was getting all these colors, and I liked that. And then I really liked In the Beginning. I thought it's sort of, uh, you know, starting like a uh, tone poem of creation or coming... Uh, into existence it's got this kind of swelling from a primordial soup of tones and there's this brass and sporadic percussion over the strings and thick brass gets triumphant that huge climax I thought oh, this is great and hmm. uh, then after that I was kind of let down by the program yeah. and when you said that you know it had originally been a violin and piano kind of composition right I, I think that's where there wasn't enough there to, you know, bring to the orchestra, which is only strings for me. Although the violin performance is fine, I thought that it's sort of more of the same as it goes through, and then the lost landscapes to me as well. It just didn't have, you know, this kind of palette of sound and interesting um, movement that uh, I was looking for in Rottweiler's music. So I, I liked the, fir- <laughs> the first half of the recording after that. I thought, ah, it's okay, but...
1: Yeah, I like them too. They were new works for me too. And I think they might yeah. be first recordings. So they, I think they put a lot into them. I think we get a pretty ideal performance of uh, the Du Serenade from yeah. Harry Hans. So if you want to hear them, you could
0: yeah.
1: go for her, I'd say. Yeah, over the years, I've gotten a lot of people into Rottweiler's music because a lot of people don't know him. You know, hmm. and especially when he was alive, um, only if you were sort of in certain circles, you would have known who he was because he was getting popular in the United States. But of course, no one, no one I know listens to you know, when I going out socially. No one listen, I know listens to classical music. So when I turn them on to him, they're always they're always like amazed to know that music like this exists. If you want to get into his music, I will recommend the Seventh Symphony called subtitled "Angel of Light." It's really beautiful. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, the eighth symphony, uh The Journey, which is the last one he wrote. And he has a lot of great concerti as well. All three piano concertos are great. Uh the third one is especially gentle. There's a famous performance of it with uh by Vladimir Ashkenazi who uh um commissioned it. There's a great harp concerto and uh there's a great violin concerto as well. Um yeah check those out if you want to hear some oh and listen to cantus arcticus oh yeah which is a, that, which is really beautiful it's a he calls it concerto for birds and orchestra and it's got um, recorded sounds of arctic birds um, integrated into the score it's just really magical uh, so give that a listen if you can you do a search on your <laughs> for that It'll it'll enchant you Okay. Now, last of all, I have another recording of the Mozart clarinet concerto paired with a modern, a contemporary <laughs> composer. Now, we did something like this. Er- I was intrigued by this. We did something like this earlier in the year. We had, um, uh, who do we have? Is I forget her name. Von Wawa was her name. And, With uh, the yoga she, thing, right? Yeah. She had a piece <laughs> called Flow, which was also for the, uh, I guess, the bassy clarinet too, an orchestra. And it had chanting in it. And it was a good piece, but I was like, I could have done without the uh, the words. There were some spoken words <laughs> yeah, in it. I always feel like you're kind of cheating when you do that, unless you can actually have those people sing. Anyway, someone else uh, decided to do this. Actually, one of the most famous clarinetists in the world, Michael Collins. Now, I made a joke about Michael Collins on Facebook that uh, not only does he play the clarinet, but he also uh, piloted the Apollo 11 mission around the moon. That's a different Michael Collins. <laughs> I knew that. I was just kidding. All right? It's like, how amazing is this guy? Anyway. Anyway, this Michael Collins is English, and he's one of the world's most renowned clarinetists. He's now 60 years old. And um, he has paired – he's done something like uh, Van Wawa has done. He's uh, played the clarinet concerto and even includes the clarinet quintet, which is a fairly long work. It Hmm. comes in at around 30 minutes long. And he's paired them with um, what really turns out to be a rather brief um, contemporary work by Richard Burchall called – Basset Clarinet Concerto, so it's specifically written for the basset clarinet. Now, one of the things that really intrigues me about these recordings, the von Ra- Wawa one and this one, is that both um, both um, musicians are playing the basset clarinet rather than the clarinet. Mozart's Concerto and Clarinet Quintet were originally written for the basset clarinet, and um, later were sort of like transposed upwards, or they were altered so that they could be played on a regular clarinet, and they had some odd lines in them. They sound really satisfying here. The bassic clarinet can go to a lower range than the clarinet, so you get some really good, satisfying low notes out of the mm-hmm. both of these works by Mozart. And of course, the contemporary composers are just going to exploit that completely because they know what instrument they're writing for here. So, anyway, let's, uh, so there's also a great recording of the uh, Mozart clarinet concerto and clarinet Quartet by Martin Frost, who is also one of the world's great clarinetists, clarinet soloists in classical music. All right, so first we hear this is, I should mention, this is on the Beast label and it's an SACD. Okay. Hmm. The, uh, uh, which means I heard it in surround sound. Something to say about that. Okay, so Michael Collins is playing the, uh, bass clarinet and this, um, also includes the Philharmonia Orchestra. And um, the, um, the conductor Robin O'Neill will conduct the uh, contemporary work. And then we get the Wigmore soloists for the Mozart Clarinet Quintet. They are Alexander Sitkovetsky on the violin, Annabelle Meir on second violin, Isabel van Koylen on the uh, viola, and Adrian Brendel, who is um, Alfred Brendel, the great pianist's son, uh, on the cello. Um, so first we get the Mozart clarinet concerto um, in A major, K622, written in the last year of his life, 1791. Um, this I think this is the last orchestral score he completed. And he was writing the Requiem when he died, as we all know, from <laughs> seeing Amadeus <laughs> and doing research too. Anyway, <laughs> the first movement is Allegro... And here, there's a nice fluency to the conducting. I was very happy about this right away. There's a deep room sound that reverberates suitably, so we get a sense of dimensionality in the sound. The clarinet's entry is clean and full-bodied. The recording is fantastic in its clarity. We get a sense of the distinct tone that Collins conjures. And one of the reasons we get that so strongly is that the clarinet is recorded fairly closely to the point where it's not covered up by the orchestra during passages when it's accompanying. You can hear every single thing, hmm. every single note the clarinet plays throughout this whole recording. He, he's placed very much up front. It's interesting to hear, I have to say. It's pretty remarkable, uh, considering that Collins is conducting this work as well. He's um, conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra in this clarinet concerto. So he's doing a leaf over nest here. <laughs> He conducts very well, though, in a nice flowing style. Mm. Uh, I'm not too sure about how clearly Collins can be heard during accompanying passages. Um, He's always up front, which I think is too far up front, but he's such a pleasure to listen to that it's really not worth complaining about. (laughs) Um, The surround on the the five-channel layer of the Super Audio CD um, adds a lot of warmth and dimensionality to an already fantastically clear recording. Uh, the Bassett clarinet has an extended lower range, and Collins's tone is so clean that he's able to hide the readiness of those tones, which uh, to be honest kind of disappointed me. I really like the roughness <laughs> of that sound, but he's uh this is a great virtuoso here he can he can really get the sound he wants, okay, it's pretty remarkable playing. Um, I like the precision of his conducting and the slow second theme uh, which I'm appreciating more in the recapitulation. Uh, He keeps the orchestra playing flowing, never sounding like he's beating time mechanically. Of course, Collins' playing is fluid and fluent, making every phrase register. It's a gorgeously executed movement. The second movement, Adagio. The theme is taken warmly and beautifully by the Bassett clarinet. Next, the strings come up warmly in the restatement of the theme. And this is, this movement is a little slowly taken, but we're in for some melting, gorgeous tones in this movement, especially for the Basset clarinet. Um, Collins manages some emotion from the orchestra as well, because remember, he's conducting the orchestra. They dig in for their intermittent passages and it comes across as deeply felt emotion. Collins rather underplays the staccato marking time, the staccato marking time strings as the clarinet takes center stage. Our ears our ears are fully on the clarinet in this movement. Again, part of the reason for that is because it's moved so far forward, but it's also because Collins' tone is magnetic. Um, he manages a magical hushed sound in his solo, and even more so in the strings at around the four minutes and forty second mark. At around the seven minute mark, I feel like his forwardness in the mix the mix masks and kind of ruins the false cadence. 'Cause there's a there's a great false cadence here and you're he's so present that you're listening to him and you almost miss it. <laughs> it's a small pleasure lost in a movement full of gorgeous sounds. Third movement rondo. This movement is played slightly faster than usual, giving it as complete a contrast with the middle movement as is possible at these tempos. The rhythm is sharply etched and dance like uh, Collins is light in his rhythmic flight and maintains that gorgeous tone throughout. There's great, fluent passage work, too. Collins manages some playfulness when ping-ponging between registers at around 3 minutes and 45 seconds. I'm always pretty amazed at how solid and steady his tone is, almost like it's a tangible object. Uh, the orchestral tutti come across full-bodied and loudly. They make an impact on the body as well as the ears. So this is a performance worth hearing, there are magical moments in it, and the recording is fantastic. I just question the placing of the clarinet so far forward, especially in accompanying passages. Anyway, next we go to the Mozart Clarinet Quintet in A Major, uh, Kershaw 581, written in 1789. And this features Michael Collins on the Basset Clarinet and the Wigmore Hall soloist, Alexander Sitkovetsky, on violin 1, Annabelle Mier on violin two, Isabel van Koehlen on viola, and Adrian Brendel on cello. The Allegro, first movement. Um, The sound, first of all, this is a a chamber group, so we expected a different sound. Um, The sound is very much thinner here than it was in the clarinet concerto, and not just because of the ensemble. The room sound is much more obvious and I checked uh, the booklet note because it was so different, I had to I had to look, and they are indeed in a different venue uh, for this particular piece. Uh, they recorded the um, piano quintet at the Menuhin Hall at the Yehudi Menuhin School in England, whereas the concertos record- were recorded at the Henry Wood Hall, which I think is a larger hall. Uh, the difference is noticeable, but the ear eventually grows accustomed. Okay, the clarinet, of course, has a great tone. There's a halo around all of the instruments, but they come up clearly. All parts, that's a, I mean, like a reverb halo, sort of. All parts are played sensitively. The balance is a bit more even on this one. The mic seems too far away from the ensemble to my ear. Um, this or there's too much ambience coming out of the back speakers because i'm listening to this in surround still everything registers especially the pizzicati and the cello at the end of the first movement a detail i hadn't noticed before there's a spaciousness the placement of the instruments and the placing of the tempo that allows a lot of detail to emerge in the recapitulation i'm noticing that the string quartets details are coming through more noticeably than they did at the beginning the cello's line is a bit lost in the room ambience at around 7 minutes and 11 seconds, though. I do like the way the players all highlight certain elements in their lines. Some details stand out in ways they don't on other recordings. Second movement, Larghetto. The clarinet has the lead at the beginning of this movement, and he takes it beautifully and lyrically. The false cadence at 1 minute and 25 seconds it registers well. The duet between the first violin and clarinet beginning at around 1 minute and 40 seconds is lovely. Sensitive and warm, though the violin is lost a bit in the room ambience. The clarinet sounds fine in this environment. I also enjoyed the quiet, personal playing of the clarinet and its sensitive accompaniment at 4 minutes and 20 seconds or so onwards. Gorgeous ending to a gorgeously played movement. You know, at this point, I was getting the uh, the feeling that this recording was was made it was all kind of built around the sound of the clarinet and something else didn't sound so good too bad. Yeah. I got that impression. That's really, he's, he's definitely the star and everybody else is a supporting character. Anyway, third movement, menuetto, uh, and then two trios. This is a pretty straightforward as a menuet, and it's pretty square in its shape. The quartet allows some of the inner voices to come forward to give the ear some detail to grab onto. The first trio is a complete contrast, slippery and sliding towards its surprising cadences. Subtle fluctuations in volume and rhythm draw the ear. There's a repeat of the menuet, then we get trio 2 at 3 minutes and 58 seconds in 3-4 time. It's rather teasing in its light dancing rhythm. I like uh, Collins' burst of tone at the bottom range when he does his scales leading to get the continuation of the melody. Now, again, normally you don't hear that, but he's placed very far forward, and you do. He He's very up in the mix, and you hear all that, and it's actually very enjoyable. I really enjoyed hearing those details. Mozart was great at these middle sections of minuets, and this is a good example of that. Fourth movement, Allegretto con Variazioni. So this is a variations movement. Um, I should mention that in this quintet, All tempos are perfectly realized. Um, The clarinet concerto as well, but I mentioned some of them were a little slow and some were a little fast, but here they're all really perfect. Um, The proper mood of the material comes through in this movement, as it did in all the other movements. The theme here is rather straightforward and doesn't involve the clarinet, which comes in for the first variation. Collins gets a few nice bursts in his lower range that clearly ring through the strings. In the variation at 3 minutes, where I believe the viola has the lead, the viola sounds a bit off mic. It's not easy to follow his entire line. At 3 minutes and 57 seconds he plays his part so softly that the accompaniment uh, covers him up. Um, After that we get a variation with some virtuosic scales from Collins. His bass notes always burst through the texture. I guess because he's the only one playing in that range, that's the case. The variation at 5 minutes and 20 seconds is very sensitively taken and registers beautifully. The last variation is taken very quickly with the cello digging in with the bow to produce a big bass sound on a par with the clarinet's low bursts of sound heard earlier. Okay so for this work and for the uh Mozart clarinet concerto if you're really interested in hearing the the clarinet lines a beautiful clarinet playing that's what's going to draw you to this this is this is really is more of a soloist um, performance than an the en- ensemble Though the ensemble does play well hmm. Okay next we get to the contemporary work Richard Burchill Concerto for Batsy Clarinet and Orchestra subtitled For Michael Collins written in the year 2020 This features Michael Collins on Basset Clarinet, the Philharmonia Orchestra, and this time Robin O'Neill is conducting. Uh, Burchell, the conductor, uh, not the conductor, the composer, Richard Burchell, is British and is a cellist as well as a composer. In this work, Burchell seeks to translate aspects of the work of M.C. Escher, who is a draftsman of such things as endless staircases that move forever upward in a circle, or like never-ending waterfalls. We used to love these kind of um, yeah. things in college. People had them, you know, on their in their dorm rooms um, showing the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know what they're
0: showing. the. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that everything just isn't, you impossible know... Impossible constructions, yeah.
1: Impossible constructions, right. Uh, anyway, um, Birchall is trying to put those sorts of things into musical form here. Anyway, the first movement is called metamorphosis I'm surprised he called this just a concerto when he's got this Escher theme though you know Mm. anyway the first movement is called metamorphosis and here all the transitions of harmony and tempo are neatly dovetailed or blended from section to section let me read I'm gonna read this from the booklet first so that we understand what we're talking about here in the manner of Escher's woodcuts of the same name The music gradually travels through many variations of texture and mood. Following a climactic high point, it finds its way back through earlier material to conclude with the singularity of the piece's opening. Uh, The predominant motif is E-flat C-B-E, which is Escher's musical signature. The B being the H in German notation. Alright, this starts with low droning strings. The clarinet is heard in its hollow reedy lower range at first, which of course thrilled me. Uh, a lot of its most fascinating colors coming out in its opening line, which rises towards its middle range and hangs out around there. There's a nice pairing of the instrument with the English horn just before the first minute. I love the low clarinet tone at a minute and 52 seconds. The movement is pretty warm and easy on the ear. There's a quiet solo passage for clarinet at 2 minutes and 45 seconds accompanied by vibrato-less strings that are barely audible, yet their presence is sensed. I'm impressed by the orchestration and performance. Collins explores a lot of the colors of his instrument and we get some heavily reedy tones in the 4th minute. From around 4 minutes and 50 seconds we get a livelier section. There's some wild piercing tones from the clarinet just after the 6 minute and 20 second mark. The piece then mellows out a bit at about 6 minutes and 50 seconds uh, in a part that conjures up a night on the town for me. Um, Good warm orchestra writing at 7 minutes and 40 seconds. When I say a night on the town, I mean like a a laid back night on the town, not like a a painting the town type thing. (laughs) Anyway, the second movement, Still Life. The solo clarinet is initially suspended over a lilting accompaniment again i'm reading from the booklet for this part so we know what this is about becoming more integrated as the movement progresses escher's still life pictures tend to evoke a sense of unease so the musical material wells up in an anguished way followed by a release of tension and a reminder of the stillness of the movement's undercurrent yeah i think we liked all those um impossible constructions in college because They had a things are not what they seem sort of quality to it. Mm. I think that was our our whole mantra in college, let's say. Anyway, this movement has wavering accompaniment from the orchestra as the clarinet plays its material. There is indeed an anguished feel to the brief crescendos. The accompaniment evokes an unsettling night for me. A sudden change back at about three minutes to the wavering accompaniment, only this time with outbursts from the clarinet and some orchestral instruments. After an unsettling section, the wavering orchestral figure is back at four minutes and 40 seconds or so, laying a bed for the clarinet's unsettling ruminations. The clarinet finishes the movement solo with a trill that ends in a natural fade. Very nice. Third movement is called as Russ mentioned earlier, Impossible Construction. These are the ones that we really liked. Escher's Impossible Constructions. Um, Following Escher's most famous drawings is the booklet again, like endless staircases and upward waterfalls. In the music, certain structural elements are intentionally illogical, both at the level of irregular phrase lengths and also in the conjunction of different musical ideas. I think this is hard to put across in music just because... (laughs) Anything goes in the postmodern age, really. Yeah. But anyway, what happens here is there's a wild opening line by the clarinet. The tempo is fast and the accompaniment lively. The clarinet has constantly moving lines that leap all over the place. Uh, this sounds really hard to play. And it's hard to describe as events go by so fast that they're hard to isolate in speech. Uh, there's a kind of umpal lurching rhythm at around three minutes and four seconds that the clarinet rather coquettishly dances over and the material speeds up towards the ending the movement ends suddenly on a note of resolution which was rather surprising okay so gorgeous detail throughout the recording and i rather enjoyed the virtual piece more than the hendrix piece on the on the van valves (laughs) album flow (laughs) although i liked that i didn't dislike it i don't know i I should hear it again i i kind of thought it was okay Van is an excellent on that, but after decades of hearing um, Michael Collins, uh, he's become a familiar sound and his tone is something to luxuriate in. I've got some questions about the balance in the Mozart concerto and also in the Mozart quintet, but it's a good opportunity to hear the entire clarinet part clearly and the performance is first rate, even with Collins dividing his attention between conducting and playing the solo part in the clarinet concerto. It's one to hear. And there's an interesting new piece to discover. I also like the I like the virtual piece enough. Um, I'd hear it again. It was some, had some pretty cool sounds in it, and I'd like to get to know it a little better.
0: Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous clarinet playing here. Uh, like I say, that's front and center. Mm. Uh, even when yeah. it may may have been better left in the background a little bit, but uh, Collins is such a you know, virtuoso of clarinet and has that beautiful tone. Plus, with this instrument, with that low range. You know, you get a full spectrum of wonderful clarinet sound. Uh, The performances are great. The recording's nice and clear. It's uh, blended well. Uh, There's a rich... uh, I was only listening into two-channel. I did some headphones and mainly speakers, but uh, you get a nice room sound uh, in both venues of those recordings for the Mozart. And I enjoyed the performances a lot. The phrasing is wonderful and uh, just the tonal quality is really lovely. I always have a little bit of a kind of uneasiness with these kind of program (laughs) programming (laughs) of uh, you know, classical and then a modern piece. So I have that same feeling here, but I don't dislike the uh, virtual. I thought it was really interesting. His composing has very interesting tone colors and blends. I like how he wraps the kind of the orchestral sounds around the clarinet. Uh, Mm. It's kind of very interesting. I got a kind of staircase feeling uh, from the way those tones spiral around. I'm going
1: to go back and listen to that then. Yeah,
0: the final movement I thought was really rhythmically interesting. There's a lot going on there. Lots of motion. The the way that uh, the rhythms are used carries it through those fast rhythmic and accented lines. And it's got that cute kind of loping theme in there too. It's a good piece. Um, I just, what I would... Do is uh, and actually, I did this because uh, I was running out of time. I listened to the Mozarts first and I came back the next day and listened to the Birchall. Good idea. uh, I'd want a little kind of reset or intermission between those two uh, just so I could get you know my mind ready for the differences in them. But it's it's an interesting piece, and uh, I think for the clarinet in a kind of modern idiom, uh, it sounds really hard to play, but it Mm. brings out lots of cool things that the clarinet can do as such a fluid instrument so yeah very remember, enjoyable
1: remember it's a basset clarinet actually, yeah basset so clarinet you get those low sounds it's too. like
0: a clarinet with a subwoofer built into it so. <laughs> it's got yeah, that's a good description <laughs> yeah. yeah very cool Spe-
1: speaking of which before we move on um when you heard the ranitsky recording did you like suddenly run downstairs and listen to it on your on your big stereo just to really get the full impact
0: so after dinner uh one evening we sat down on the uh sofa with the misses there and i put on the ranitski and i thought <laughs> right away um wow they already this, know it's gonna happen <laughs> yeah this is really dynamic and uh so i'm gonna crank it up a little bit and you know i said this is great we're getting immersed in this sound and you know it was getting a little bit later and uh my wife had dozed off next to me and when that drum hit <laughs> uh, it uh, it woke her from her slumbers you could say and uh, she thought that a meteorite had crashed through the roof or something uh, that's how dynamic it was yeah so yeah. Um, it was an interesting experience and I'm glad that I had heard it first on the, the big system because uh, I got the full impact right away yeah alright so it's jazz time now and uh, well this week you know, we've been on a world tour for Quite a while, kind of going around to uh, oh, yeah. Greece and other countries and uh, checking out a lot of international things. So, tonight in jazz is kind of a return to the motherland of jazz, uh, the United States. And tonight is all some real heavy hitters with big names in the American music scene of jazz. And uh, these are some of my favorite players, and I just, these were must listen tos. And, mm. um, you know, and okay. we're going to start out with one who I know we both enjoy a lot. And uh, this had come out, the weeks are going on now. And I wanted to get to it because we were both looking forward to that.
1: And, and he's going to release two more albums this yeah, year. Yeah. So we'll probably have to talk about those too.
0: So we're starting out with really someone who's become one of the elder statesmen of jazz, but that's only in stature, not in freshness and. Uh, sort of vigor for the music and that's uh, mr charles lloyd hmm. uh, with his new release on blue note records uh, trios hmm. and this one is called uh, chapel and as mike just mentioned this is going to be a trio of trio releases hmm. with uh, different combinations of performers uh, so we've got two more to look forward to and, and charles lloyd really doesn't need uh, much of an introduction because he's a huge figure in jazz and yet he's still being extremely creative and coming up with new things at 84 years old uh, which is a real inspiration Uh, sounds as good as ever Um, and uh, his work recently with his group the marvels uh, those recordings are all fabulous what i like is he explores a lot of uh, kind of americana and other themes in his music he doesn't just stick with uh, the jazz tradition and uh, he finds kind of fresh vehicles and ideas for improvisations. But among you know those Marvel recordings and things, there's always something that happens very magically whenever he's paired with uh, Bill Frizzell. Yeah. And uh, mm. you know Bill Frizzell can sort of put a, as we've said before, I think, I don't know if we've mentioned on a podcast, but at least when we talk about him, uh, together, he can sort of uh, put a stamp of atmosphere yeah. that really defines a recording and uh, set the whole atmosphere for what everyone else is doing. But rather than uh, sort of setting limits for Charles Lloyd, it, it sort of they play off each other exceptionally well whenever they're together, and a lot of magical things uh, happen on this recording, and uh, it's a fine uh, first one. I wonder. What's going to happen in the next two recordings? Uh, A lot to look forward to. Anyway, uh, so Lloyd is here on his usual tenor sax, and we also get some alto flute uh, that sounds great, and Bill Frisell on guitar, and we have uh, Thomas Morgan on bass, and no percussion on here, and that lends a sort of uh, kind of expansive fluidity to the recording that I think is kind of charming as well. Also here we've got Steve Jennewick, credited as immersive mix engineer. I don't know <laughs> what that means really, if he's the sound, just the sound man or... Uh, immersive, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know about yeah, that. I don't know. It was a pretty warm recording I think though. And it sounds you know. great and it's a live recording mm-hmm. too. Uh, which you won't pick up on until later in the program. Uh, recording venue is Coates Chapel Southwest School of Art. And uh, we've got a really nice program of music here too. Uh, it's it's not an overly long recording and uh, there's just five tracks on it. But yeah, this is something uh, I found really enjoyable. We're going to start with Billy Strayhorn's Blood Count, which is a very moving piece that was actually written on his deathbed really channels a lot of emotional energy here. Probably a lot of uh, people know this uh, melody. It's kind of famous. All three and the trio come in right away on a slow rubato here. But listen carefully how Frisell wraps his guitar lines around Lloyd's tenor sax melody lines. They sort of intertwine in a kind of, as we were talking about before, a staircase that kind of spirals together. They get that kind of effect here. Uh, Morgan provides extra beats and counterlines, but not a rhythmic pulse here. Uh, it moves with a shared sense of flow and remains delicate. Lloyd hits a few kind of aching cries on high notes that get some harmonic overtones uh, that add to the ambiance. Frizzell takes a solo, mixing melodic lines and chords. Uh, he adds a slight tremolo to the uh, guitar sound. Lloyd joins back in, weaving through the harmonies. By now, it's developed more of a rhythmic push, and Morgan has more syncopated rhythmic patterns underneath. Uh, Lloyd gets a little modal in his playing, and then free as it slows to the end. Uh, As usual, when uh, Frizzell and Lloyd are together, it's all about tones and texture, and this is a really nice uh, sampling of that to get things started.
1: I want to mention, too, Frizzell, we we often say that he... uh, really tends to grab the attention just because of his whole approach and sound but i feel like lloyd charles lloyd is one of the few people who he doesn't draw attention from because i, I always found myself like riveted by lloyd's playing as well yeah. so i don't find myself just you know going over to no to the Bill this is pretty remarkable so i noticed that right away and that really intrigued mm. me about this i album. find
0: their musical personalities very complimentary and yeah. they sort of have this real intuitive sense of how each other is going to work and give each other space but then come together in very complementary ways so right the next track uh is a lloyd original song my lady sings forcell starts a medium waltzing intro uh, helped by bouncy morgan lines and plays through the melody over the chords his tone is thick and reverby here Frisell continues on improvising he leaves lots of space keeps you guessing about what he'll play or not play next. At about two minutes, it shifts to Morgan's bass melody lines. He plays rhythmically and with clear attacks, but he's very relaxed uh, in his approach. Lloyd joins in softly on tenor sax about three minutes, blowing gently and breathily. His lines get more animated with runs, but they flow effortlessly. Frasel backs with chords and complimentary little fills and counterlines. It slows up after eight minutes for some free floating through the final chords with nice guitar trills by Frasel under the sax. Track three is a tasty little treat. Ignacio Jacinto Via Fernandez tune, Ai Amor. Lloyd blows the sad rubato minor melody, and Frasel sometimes doubles up on the pitches of the melody with guitar. After a minute, Fussell sets a slow bossa rhythm with his chords and Morgan adds the pulse. Uh, Lloyd blows the main major melody and Fussell has rich reverby tremolo chords underneath before taking over the melody for himself. Then Lloyd joins back in just past three and a half minutes for another round. This is the kind of lovely melody that you can just stick around. You don't need to embellish it a lot because it's so nice as it is Lloyd gets some nice cracks into harmonics and his tones. They get a little rhythmic groove going about uh, four minutes and 50 seconds before taking uh, one more float through the melody. Uh, Friselle and Morgan take it out with a little groove, and someone adds a little shaker at the end. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little percussive uh, thing. Maybe they picked it up uh, just uh, riding the feel there. Uh, It's just a beautiful performance of this tune. Uh, Track four, another Lloyd original, Beyond Darkness. Morgan gets a bass line going. Frizzell adds ringing mysterious notes forming close harmonies and Lloyd joins in on the flute, sort of like a primeval modal call from the wilderness here. Frizzell adds some harmonics that ring out. It forms into the melody that gives a lot of space for Lloyd to add ornaments and kind of uh, running figures. Frizzell inserts tasty fills between his chords and then about 2 minutes and 20 seconds in, the rhythm pauses before setting into a new groove with motion added from Morgan. Aloyd solos with floating lines, and Fussell has a solo with interesting harmonic movements mixed with fluid uh, melodic lines as well. After about 5.5 minutes, Morgan gets some bass focus with an understated melodic exposition. Lloyd joins in again a minute later with more modal and mysterious lines that flow into more lifting high runs and flutters. Uh, it resets again around eight and a half minutes to a free-flowing final fluttering and tonguing flute exposition over muted guitar tones by Frisell hmm. Track five, another Lloyd original, Dorotea's Studio. Fussell makes an intro that becomes rhythmic around repeated muted notes, overtones, and some intriguing little double-stopped figures. It keeps going with lots of tasty ideas. About 2 minutes and 15 seconds, it gets a little calypso feel to it with the addition of Morgan's bass, and Lloyd joins in back on tenor with a breezy melody. Morgan breaks into walking bass lines under a section of that. Uh, Lloyd goes around a few times blowing lots of rapid fluttery figures before joining back to the melody. It has a cute little minor twist to it. Uh, You can hear applause for the first time on the recording after his solo, and Fussell is up next with a super melodic and charming solo capturing the Calypso spirit, breaking into swing for little sections with the help of Morgan. Uh, He goes on and on with creative uh, melody lines and chord backing. Uh, Just before eight minutes, Morgan gets a bass solo, also very melodic and endearing, but with fun rhythms. He really stretches it out here. It's a three-minute bass solo, but the crowd shows their approval, uh, registers on the recording, before Lloyd joins back in once more around the melody. So just five tracks here, but it's Mm -hmm. dreamy. Lyrical, free-flowing, full of beautiful tones and synchronicity—that tends to happen whenever Lloyd and Frizzell get together. It's your loss if you don't hear this recording. It's just beautiful.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, five tracks, but they're they're fairly extended, so this is like mm-hmm. a full-length album. This will, you know, it's, I think yeah. it's about forty-five minutes or forty minutes long. Um, it It's recorded in a chapel, and the music seems to me to conform to the holiness of the place, really. It's quiet mm. and really modest all the way through. There's kind of a hush to the whole album, and I really loved it, too. Um, it sounds like it's going to repay many listenings in the future. I've already heard it like four times. I have the CD already. Yeah. Um, and I especially enjoyed the creativity and elevated spirits of the last piece. Now, I, I did some research, too, and I heard – I found – this And I guess the ones that are coming were recorded before the pandemic started in 2018. Oh, okay. This is already like a four-year-old <laughs> recording. Mm. And it kills me to think that this was being held on to. Now, Lloyd had a lot of other projects in that time, and I guess you can't you know, release six albums a year, so they just kind of spaced them out. But um, still, I would have liked to have heard this like when it came out. Yeah. We have something to look forward to for the other ones.
0: Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. No and records, I ad- huh? I admire his uh, energy and continued creativity at 84 years of age. You know, it, it's hard to play the flute. You now, flute re- requires uh, a lot of breath control. A wind instruments in general at yeah. that age, you know? And uh, just yeah. kind of, not not just force, but you know, a subtle, controlled airstream. And to uh, be able to still play with uh, that kind of control and creativity, it's just inspiring. One complaint about Blue
1: Blue Note Records doesn't put the recording dates oh. inside the album. That drives me crazy. So this isn't the only Blue Note album I have that doesn't have the recording yeah. dates, so I wish they would do that.
0: The other thing that irritates me about them is, you know, they'll they'll really kind of uh, pump up a future release and they'll release like one track and leave you yeah. hanging for months <laughs> with that one track. When's the album coming out? You know. Yeah. I almost forget about it by the time it actually comes out. Uh, right. They're really uh, teasers like that. So come on, guys. Get those albums out. Now, another note that uh, doesn't do that, um, and we've got two releases on this uh, label, which tend to get things right out there, and that's the high note label. And good And for you. Uh, first, we're going to go with a, a pianist who I've always liked. Um, Me too. Because he's got that special that special soul kind of uh, feeling and that's that way of lifting the whole room too yeah (laughs) yeah and it's infectious contagious Cyrus chestnuts and here he's got a tribute to his father which is called my father's hands now Cyrus chestnut he was born in 1963 comes from a religious family and, and he's got a religious music background his father was a church deacon McDonald chestnut and a church pianist and uh, his mother was also a church choir director, so he grew up in uh, this kind of religious music environment. He began learning piano at age seven, and he played in uh, Baptist church. Uh, by age of nine, he was studying classical music at Peabody Institute, and uh, went on to get a degree in jazz composition and arranging from Berklee College of Music. And uh, I started to know him Uh, when he formed a trio with Christian McBride and Carl Allen in the early 1990s. And what I like is, uh, you know, he always keeps sort of those gospel roots in his music. He had a really nice uh, collection of hymns, spirituals, and carols uh, back uh, in the late 90s. A Blessed Quietness was the recording. We've heard him on the podcast before uh, last year with Vincent Herring preaching to the choir. A really good recording. Uh, here he is with his trio, Chestnut on piano, Peter Washington on bass, and Louis Nash on drums. As I said, dedicated to his father. We begin uh, with a Chestnut Original, Nippon Soul Connection. Hey, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're here in Nippon. I don't know what the connection is. Uh, I think uh, Cannonball Adderall he had a tune, uh, Nippon Soul, because uh, uh, he did a okay. live album in uh, Japan. Anyway, uh, this one starts out with a swinging kind of a bluesy melody of repeated solo piano riffs joined by bass and drums on the end of the lines. There's a fun switch up briefly to a straight Latin beat on the B section of the melody. Chestnut launches into a solo after the melody, swinging hard, impressing with lots of varied rhythms, lines of triplets, hammering and ringing chords as always he sounds jubilant and you get infected with the happy bug yourself Uh, he brings the solo crashing down to low dissonant chord and then peter washington gets a bass solo he leaves cool pauses in between phrases creating anticipations and surprises with interesting turns in his melodies Chestnut brings back some raucous and rolling chords to start an exchange of trading eights with Nash on drums. Then another tour around the fun original tune with a bit more of a Latin feel added over the B section. Big bluesy finish over busy drumming by Nash. Uh, we're in a good mood already from the first yeah. tune here. Yeah, I like this style right away. Yeah. Another Chestnut original for track two, Thinking About You. This one's a slow strolling beat uh, with a cute melody has some rhythmic fun in the fourth measure uh, in the piano. A little bit different feel right there. Chestnut leaves a lot of space in the phrases. He chimes it out a bit more in the final phrase. Washington is up first for a bass solo here. He starts melodically, works into some fast 16th note speedy runs, finishing up bluesy and rhythmically. Chestnut is next with lots of rhythmic high note ideas. He hints at Pop Goes the Weasel, and Hmm. includes a lot of fun rhythms, uh, rhythmic two-handed figures, dazzling with some runs, finally brings it down and connects back through another easy run, through the melody, ramping it up on the B section with rolling figures and a cute chord to kiss off at the end. Hmm. Go a little bit Latin on track three, a tune from Ray Bryant, Cubano Chant. A very cool ostinato bass line with uh, intervals starts this out. Uh, Nash adds a clicky Latin beat, and Chestnut, some Cubanesque chords that have a bluesy end-of-phrase feel. Uh, he starts to solo out bluesy and funky, having a lot of fun with the rhythms, uh, getting stuck on a bluesy riff, throwing in some tumbling figures and injecting some Cuban left-hand ideas sometimes. They go around the fun melody again, but it's only four minutes long. And I wouldn't hmm. have mind if they stretched it out to eight minutes. Cause this one just yeah. has that nice groove.
1: Yeah. I, I even wrote a feel good piece all the way through. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's got those groove. I like the way they combine the Cuban feel with the blues. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, just works somehow. Next, we got a standard by George Forrest, Robert Wright, "Bobbles, Bangles and Beads. Yeah, we recently heard this on another album. Ah, I think we, we did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a good old tune. Uh, yeah. So Waltzing original solo piano intro here with a kind of descending and then ascending chord cycle. I mean it's based around the harmony. You won't pick up the tune right away. Then the bass and drums join in that chord cycle for a go-around. Then chestnut gives us the familiar melody. I really like the way he phrases it with short articulations on the second note, you know, so the lyrics are baubles, bangles, and he does it like a doodit, doo-dit. And so yeah. that second note is you know, clipped nicely. It's it's just a really cool touch of articulation. Nash has some tight and snappy brushwork going on underneath there. Chestnut finishes off the melody with a flourishing, rising run, starts his solo with a gentle trill, filling spaces with trills and things. I, I just love that. He's showing a lot of gracefulness and agility here, blazing triplet figures, uh, tension building, repeated, even chord figures, very classy and inventive solo. Uh, he brings it back to a very delicate restatement of the melody, and listen to the magical trickling notes of the ending.
1: Yeah, I also want to mention the uh, responses to his playing by the rhythm section in this were really fantastic mm. too. They really elevate the tune, and again, the the way you explain the uh, you know the uh, the phrasing baubles, you know, I I I, keep, I know this song from like most of these standards from Frank Sinatra. Yeah, Sinatra. Yeah, you know, my dad yeah. used to play Frank Sinatra yeah. the house all the time, so. Uh, so yeah, this is very different than that because I always felt thought of think of this as kind of a downbeat kind of tune, but it's really lively and cheerful here. and yeah. I, I yeah. think it's in an an odd rhythm for this song. I think it's normally in four, but this is like a six eight. I'm not this really is, sure. Yeah, this is a
0: waltzing uh, version. Yeah. Here. yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not sh- I'm not sure what the original
0: uh, the French version is. Yeah. I have that Sinatra album, too. I yeah. That, yeah, he does it slower and more you know legato yeah. phrasing. Yeah. Hmm. Now, um, one of the things I also like about Chestnut is he does some interesting pop covers. Uh, I have a lot of his recordings. If you go back to uh, 2018, his Kaleidoscope's recording, oh, there's a really unusual <laughs> cover, uh, Deep Purple Smoke on the Water. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you could imagine that. Uh, no, no, I can't, I no, should got to hear go that. listen yeah. to it now. <laughs> and let's see, Sweet Sweet Spirit, on that recording, uh, he did a rendition of, with added vocals of uh, You Make Me Feel Brand New. Is oh, it stylistics or something? I don't know. Probably. You yeah. make me feel brand new. I remember that song. I'm going to look it up. Yeah.
1: You keep talking, I'll let you know. Anyway,
0: here, uh, Lennon and McCartney, Yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Mostly begins, McCartney. <laughs> yeah, with a luxury really song. A roll, a lush rolling chord intro to the famous melody. Chestnut leaves a lot of space. Washington has great pulsing bass figures underneath and in the gaps. He plays the melody without much adornment, but he adds colorful touches of harmonization. Gnashes light with cymbals and clicks in the right spots. Uh, Chestnut gets a lifting feeling in the simple phrases at the beginning of his solo, uh, getting a bit bluesy, then cascading down with a line. A uh, time comes to a stop for some delicate high note ideas before resetting back into the melody, with some pretty embellishments at the end. A very nice treatment, bringing out the best in a melody that everyone in the world knows.
1: Yeah, and indeed, uh, you make me feel brand new. Was by the stylistics, and it just good call. And I gotta say that's a I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but that's a really great name for our group, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Not yeah, the, it stylists, is. the stylists, yeah, stylistics. the stylistics. It's a great yeah.
0: name. God, we need more names like that. Yeah, they had a, hmm. they knew how to pick them back then. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, as he often includes you uh, know in religious offering in his recordings, uh, here we've got a hymn. I must tell Jesus, and uh, this one is by Elisha A. Hoffman, goes back to 1894. Was included in a collection that Hoffman co-edited, uh, "Favorite Gospel Songs," hmm. and uh, this is solo piano by Chestnut, and he treats the melody respectfully, adding some colorful tag lines, uh, then finding s- some additional harmonic possibilities and creative left-hand accompaniment ideas. It ebbs and flows with rolling lines and high chiming notes. He finishes gently with chord movement to a final kind of tinkling piano playing. It's restrained and lovely playing. Just a nice hymn with a little jazz touch. Track 7, another of Chestnut's originals, working out just fine. It's a medium bluesy swing with a killer groove. Nash rides the cymbals and hits that click. well. Washington pumps a great pulse for Chestnut to build it up with throbbing chords that contrast with the lilting melody. Chestnut's solo connects bluesy phrases, has tons of rolling tension building chords and percussive attacks, a really hammered-out high note exposition. He's having too much fun, and so are we when we're listening to it. He brings Mm. it back light and tight into the melody and then works it up a bit before bringing it down for another run through. Just fine indeed, all I can say about this one.
1: I think having too much fun is like having too much money. I I don't think that's possible. Can't happen. No. Yeah.
0: Track eight, uh, another standard Mac Gordon, Harry Warren's There Will Never Be Another You. A fun drum intro around the kit, and then Chestnut brings in the melody. He gives it chiming treatment over the Latin beat feel they've chosen for the arrangement, and it's very uplifting. Uh, Washington is doing a lot of nice bass work with varied rhythmic ideas underneath and Nash is following Chestnut very closely in his solo uh, ideas, adding accents to his rhythmic patterns. Chestnut quotes Miles Davis's four along the way. Jazz fans will know that. In a surprising spot, I wouldn't have th- thought that would fit in there, but he did it. Uh, has a lot of fun with the rhythms in his solo. He brings it down into soft chord backing for Nash to do some drum soloing. Uh, once more around the melody. And they end it with a little vamp, also, that jazz fans will have heard before. Hmm. Track nine, another standard Johnny Burke, Jimmy Van Heusen's, but beautiful. Beautiful slow rendition of this one. Time almost stands still. It suspends, leaving space for Chestnut to float trickles of notes between phrases of the melody. It's just a short run through this melody, really, and it slows up at the end for Chestnut to finish with some lush ideas over Washington's bold bass. Just a pretty little short version. We end up the program with another Chestnut original epilogue. It's a very slow, pretty melancholy melody. Nash adds Tom rumblings underneath. There's a touch of blues in the chords and then some more somber and serious cadences that have these really open voice chords. It sort of mm. makes you sit up and feel serious
1: well they they're gorgeous chords too. it just give them, especially listen around the one minute mark I, I wrote mm. there's some really gorgeous chords in this
0: yeah chestnut includes gentle rhythmic figures backing his ringing melody it works into some chiming chords and graceful runs over the keyboard they're more ringing chords and then some rolling figures and takes it into a new progression of a final descending series of chords that just go down, 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 and bring it to a weighty close. I guess this is final testament to his father's memory. It mixes a lot of different emotions. So it's a great collection of songs. They express a lot of uh, different emotions and feelings. Chestnut shows his immense talent and taste, bringing uh, solos to thrilling climaxes, but also showing restraint and space for contrast in all the right places. Any father would be proud of a son who can bring this much music out of a piano.
1: Yeah, I would say, yeah, the, the it's kind of funny. He called it My Father's Hands. It sounds like it'll be a somber album, but it's really, it ends on two ballads, but this is an uplifting album for the most oh, yeah. part. And it's usually the case with him. Uh, his playing is really warm and inviting. He swings really well. I was really drawn to this right away. I mean, as I expected it to be, because I, I've heard his playing before, too. Yeah, I liked this album a lot. I want to say something about growing up in a musical religious household. Um, whenever you just watch movies about, say, the church or something like that, usually there's some kind of... You know, the church is kind of like the villain in the movie or they're kind of like mm. oppressing somebody or things like that. But no one's made a film about, say, a, a family that's involved in the church that's musical, that's a prize musical to the church. I mean, I think that would be a very positive sort of, um, you know, image, you know, to, to to provide to the church. And I think it's a real one,
0: too. Yeah, that's probably why they don't make it. <laughs> <laughs> There were movies,
1: I remember in the old, like the 40s, like Bing Crosby, there was always like, you know, he was kind of saving the neighborhood. This one priest would be doing these things. And then in the 80s, like priests were always like drinking too much and they were fat and they were kind of like causing trouble. There there was one movie recently that I liked. um, It's called Lady Bird. I think it was Greta Gerwig was the director. And it shows, um, it's pretty much a, a girl's coming of age story. And she goes to a Catholic school. And the nuns and priests are pretty much presented as real people i rather liked that about the mm. movie it just kind of reminded me of my own you know catholic school experience it was just kind of they're right. just you know helping the students some of them had you know personal problems or whatever but uh mm. yeah i really enjoyed that so there's ladybird you can see that movie <laughs> i want to see yeah. a movie about a a, a church music family
0: <laughs> it's an interesting idea yeah
1: <laughs> i know oh well, i'll get to we... work on it tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Send yeah, me the screen. I don't really play. know what enough about yeah. it to be able to do it. I'll, I'll do the but...
0: casting. I'll, I'll I'll decide who's gonna play the parts. And we'll <laughs> okay. <be> all, set. <laughs> all right, we're gonna finish off with uh one of my musical heroes here and uh, also on High Note Records, the giant of modern jazz trumpet, Tom Harrell, with his new yeah. recording, Oak Tree.
1: You're a big fan of this guy. You're always a... Uh... Yeah. I've heard a lot of Tom Harrell records over the years because of Russ. I wouldn't...
0: Yeah, because you know, I have them all. Like, I have a whole shelf of them. Of, and he made of, sure I heard all of them too. Of only Tom Harrow. <laughs> now, Tom Harrell, uh currently, he's uh, he was getting up there. He's 76 years old. 1969, he graduated from Stanford University with a music compositional degree. Went on to play with Stan Kenton's orchestra. And uh, also after that, Woody Herman's band did a stint with the Horace Silver Quintet. Also, let's see, he made uh, albums with Sam Jones, Lee Connets, uh Mel Lewis. Where I started to uh, get to know him in my teenage years was when he was an integral member of uh, Phil Wood's quintet. Also, I don't know if you know this or not, Mike, uh, but mm. one of your, uh, well, our favorite uh, artist, Vince Guaraldi. Mm. Uh, he uh, Tom Harrell contributed to the uh, You're Not Elected Charlie Brown And uh, let's see what else uh, There's No Time for Love, Charlie Brown Charlie Brown Thanksgiving ah. uh, He was on those recordings too Oh wow um, Now as I said I turned on to uh, Tom Harrell's playing when I was uh, A young trumpet player And I saw him perform Several times uh, In uh, upstate New York And I actually had a chat with him uh, one evening in the old Van Dyke jazz room in Schenectady, New York, Ooh, Schenectady, Schenectady, yeah, the Shout old out to Schenectady. city, the old city of G.E. And <laughs> uh, you know, Tom Harrow's one of the most lyrical and melodic trumpet improvisers. His solos all sound like they were written out, and you wouldn't change any notes in them. But after striking out on his own, especially I think after he left Phil Woods. He's become a uh, creative composer in his own right, and I've always found his uh, compositions very challenging. And I feel like he writes pieces that are puzzles to be solved, you know, with solos to be played over them in a challenging way.
1: Yeah, there are classical composers like that too. Giorgio Ligeti is one of them. He used right. to write pieces that were puzzles he was solving, basically.
0: Now, he's also, you know, he's he's a really good arranger, too. He's done a big band album. He's done uh, an album that sort of like impressionistic kind of music and string arrangements and, you know, all, all kinds of, you know, different uh, backing. And he's had some health problems in recent years. So I was really worried and, uh, you know, kind of waiting for his next recording. I'm happy to find out that he sounds really strong here, back to really good form. And what's interesting, uh, rather than having an album, you know, with any other strings or, uh, other instrumentation, there's no other horn side men at all. It's just, it's a quartet. It's just him and uh, the rhythm section. And, you know, for a trumpet player, that's, um, actually, you know, of any age, you're going to have to carry everything on your own. You uh, you don't mm-hmm. get, you know, to, uh, hand off the melody or the first solo every time to another uh, sideman. So uh, I think he sounds in fine form here, and he's got up to his usual uh creative standard uh, with the tunes here. Uh, so on this recording, Heron, trumpet and flugelhorn. He's a player where I can't always tell when he's playing one or the other, because he has a really nice lyrical sound on both mm-hmm. instruments. So I'm not quite sure on all the tracks uh, when he's switching off. He has a a good pianist here in Luis Perdomo, also Fender Rhodes. Uh, his yeah. long-associated bass sideman, uh, Ogona Okegwo who we've heard on the podcast before, a really solid bass player, and Adam Cruz on drum
1: Can I ask you, is this the first time we're hearing him on this podcast, Tom Harrow? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised it took so
0: long. Yeah. Waiting for a release. <laughs> As I said, he's been through a lot of... Uh, challenges uh, recently. I knew as soon as his next album came out, I was going to want to talk about it. Right, of course. You have to uh, put your big boy pants on to talk about Tom Harrell tunes (laughs) and uh, he doesn't disappoint with (laughs) jumping out with this first one. Uh, It's called Evorg, E-V-O-O-R-G. Now this is a very interesting composition. I call it Rhythm Changes Sandwich on Modal Bread. Um, and, uh, so I guess I could see that. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what it is. It it yeah. starts out with a kind of ominous sixteen-bar uh, modal intro with a syncopated riff uh, lines in the trumpet and doubled in piano. Now next is a more lyrical major sounding melody line uh, in Harold's trumpet and piano. Uh, it gets repeated twice for a total of sixteen bars. Uh, it also includes a kind of interesting lifting little modulation in there. Uh, there's a different a lyrical melody line that comes after that for uh, another 16 bars, and then suddenly rough swinging uh, to rhythm changes <laughs> to the solos. You know, probably I don't know, 30% of jazz tunes composed were over George Gorshwin's I've Got Rhythm, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's something jazz players have internalized. Here it comes as a big surprise after that opening, uh, but uh, here you're going to get a taste if you don't know. Of Harold's effortless swinging style through three choruses of solo, uh, with his always forward-thinking melodic ideas and lyrical style, uh, I chops sound really good on trumpet, which I was really pleased to say, uh, energetic and as melodic as ever. Perdomo is up next for three choruses himself. He has nice melodic lines with a light touch, clean articulation. Uh, he sticks on a nice riff that he likes and comes out of it with a cool harmonic twist, uh, adding some oomph on percussive chords for a climax. They end it with the modal idea, the last two sections without the intro, so it's just the 32-bar form, which, you know, is rhythm changes anyway. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of this little sandwich in there and... Uh, interesting yeah
1: I, we we should mention that evorg is is groove spelled groove backwards. backwards right yeah. yeah that's the title of the song of the track mm. i wonder if that has anything to do with what happens in the music like if something is backwards in the music somewhere i don't know
0: i wonder yeah well we're gonna I have to know. listen to it a million more times to figure yeah, that out you gotta out. listen to tom harrell rec- uh, compositions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot to figure out what's going on um yeah and i only got a couple times on this one when yeah. i saw the title for the next one five, and I thought, okay, we're going to have a five-four tune, but that's not it. Uh, here, Perdomo switches over to Rhodes for a very rhythmic tune. Uh, the, the melody sticks right around a uh, uh, concert F or G on a trumpet. The focus is rather on syncopated rhythms that are doubled by Harold and uh, Perdomo. A and Cruz have a nice subdivided groove going on underneath. Uh, it seems to be also 32-bar form Carol navigates through the changes after the melody in his solo, with lines incorporating intervals uh, that find interesting spots in the harmonies uh, and rhythmic phrasing to match the groove with an uplifting spirit. Perdomo gets a lot of funky groove in his solo, uh, making the most of the percussive attack of the road sound, but also he has some slick runs as well. we'll uh, gets a bass solo. Uh, Next, over light and tight drumming by Cruz, he keeps the pulsing groove going while keeping it melodic. Uh, They take it once more through a rendition of the F-centered melody with a little pause for drums uh, before the emphatic last note. Track three, Oak Tree, as I think I alluded to, but of course all these are Hmm. Harold's original compositions on here. Oak Tree, this is a softer tune with pleasing chord changes uh, and a melody that is uh, pretty, despite having a lot of interesting uh, interval jumps uh, in it, for uh, Harold to play on a trumpet, uh, Akegua provides most of the motion with bass on the beats, while Cruz is very delicate underneath. Uh, Perdomo is back on acoustic piano here. Harold starts his solo low and lyrical, leaving lots of space between his phrases. He soon gets it to some uh, double time phrases that keep all the. M- The melodic sense and navigate the changes perfectly. Uh, He sounds like he could keep going endlessly with ideas, uh, but he ties it back to the melody uh, that has a little break for some final warm and fluffy tones uh, from Harrell. Track four, Tribute. Uh, It's another mainly rhythmic melody that hangs around one note. Uh, This time it's a D uh, it has Perdomo working the rhythm on Rhodes uh, together with Harold. In the solo section, the groove gets a little more samba push to it. Uh, Harold's fluid with lyrical and uh, beautifully played solo. There's a catchy little turnaround uh, where they break up the feel in the progression with chords evenly on the beat, uh, so you always look forward to that coming. Uh, Perdomo has a nice Rhodes solo with fleet lines hinting at Uh, a phrase from Girl from Ipanema but with a little altered harmonic feel uh, and they finish it with a shortened form of the melody. Track five, our second Japan connection uh, of the evening, Zatoichi, who is a uh, fictional character uh, from a long-running series of Japanese uh, films as well as a television series uh, that are kind of uh, from the Edo era time period. It's kind of like... uh,
1: He's a he's a blind swordmaster. Blind
0: swordmaster, uh, from and he's also
1: a masseuse. Yeah,
0: and a masseuse <laughs> from the pen of uh <laughs> kan Shimozawa, mm. and uh, I think uh, B. Takeshi also had a takeoff uh, on this uh, later too.
1: He did. There, there is a famous set of movies that went on forever with this one. Yeah, one actor.
0: Yeah, who had like yeah. <laughs> kind of. I think he had some interesting uh, legal things <laughs> that he was caught doing too. So. Uh, anyway, As one does that's the title for here <laughs> and of course uh, uh, Harold starts this one off with uh, that um, melodic device uh, that starts so many tunes the uh, minor ninth it goes from this uh, chord you don't hear no, often yeah. you know, it goes from a G uh, up to uh, A flat uh, above in the octave above that and then he repeats it just to make sure you uh, heard it <laughs> so you get that interval it's repeated uh, and then sort of goes to this next uh, idea that's an evenly phrased continuous melody line in trumpet, piano, uh, and bass that unfolds. Piano and bass continue uh, the pulse while Harold surprisingly overdubs two solo lines here, pushing your buttons with some dissonance and weaving lines.
1: Yeah, I was kind of wondering about this because I heard the two trumpets. I was like, uh, you know, is there somebody else on this recording? No, no, no,
0: and that that shows up... uh, later on too uh, but yeah. uh, Cruz mixes it up underneath with tight uh, snare drumming uh, the pulse fades away for a bit and it gets a kind of amorphous with uh, bass and piano picking up on some of the melodic figures from before into the freeform section uh, Perdomo develops some escalating runs around the harmonic ideas then Cruz takes over on drums uh, showing off uh, his tight tom work Kegwell brings the pulse back for the others to join in on Uh, The line again for another jaunt uh, to the end. So a little bit um, out there. One, (laughs) especially those opening intervals. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder what the inspiration from uh, the title's each is. But uh, Mm kind of cool. Uh, Track six, Sun Up. Perdomo starts this one out with evenly spaced Rhodes chords. And Harold comes in with a yearning melody line on top. Uh, I love the simple change to minor. And then back, it really hooks you into the melody, and then it sort of transforms into a reggae feel a bit here, hmm. with Kegua's bass and Perdomo's evolving rhythmic chord feel after a minute. Cruz adds a bit of Caribbean feel as well, with tom hits and nice click ideas on his drums. Perdomo has a really tasty road solo here, lots of spaces and melodic phrases. Akego gets a nicely melodic bass solo as well, and then Harold comes back in with a cheerful horn melody on top, and they work it together to the end. One of the great things about Tom Harold's writing is he's always incorporating unique rhythmic feels. He's done uh, a couple albums that incorporate all kinds of Latin rhythms, so he's he's really well studied on uh, various different Latin rhythms, and he's also. Pays a lot of attention to the tempo so it's not just fast and slow but you know gradations between you know, different kinds of feels and the, the tempos he chooses are all really important to carry off the feel of the tunes track seven is uh, called improv uh, this one's got a boppy melody uh, from Harold, mm-hmm. kind of modulating lines uh, And stop time in the rhythm section highlights that kind of bop feel to it. Perdomo's up first for a swinging solo on acoustic piano. There's some speedy runs and figures that dazzle, but his left hand is always tight underneath. Uh, Harold has a bopping and melodic solo as well. He can always find the beautiful notes uh, for tasty treats along the way. Uh, I think that's what he kind of if you listen to his early playing, any you know even into his mature playing, you can hear uh, Chet Baker and Clifford Brown kind of influences. And uh, Chet Baker was a player who would always find the beautiful notes through any difficult chord progression. And Tom Harrell can do that as well. Here he uh, even overdubs some uh, backing trumpet lines uh, behind his solo uh, to push it along. A follows with a bouncy bass solo. They take it through the melody again with a final flourish from Cruz on drums. Track 8, Shadows. Uh, this one's got a bossa feel with interesting chord movement and a lyrical melody from Harrell. I like how the piano breaks into triplets over the final section of the melody. Uh, Harrell plays a solo with interesting phrasing. I'm pretty sure he's on flugelhorn here because the tone is super rich. There's some closely harmonized backing horn lines uh, added by Harold as well too. Perdomo follows with wave-like phrasing in his solo, but precise rhythmic articulation, some great triplet lines. Uh, They go through the melody once again with a few pauses, uh, creating anticipation right at the end. Then we've got track nine, Archaeopteryx. Uh, This is an interesting, easily swinging melody uh, worked by trumpet, bass, and piano together. Uh, Harold has two trumpet parts recorded together uh, here on this as well. Uh, as it progresses, Akegua breaks into rhythmic bass figures and answering figures between the lines from the bass and piano and drums. They sort of alternate uh, with answering phrases. Perdomo gets the first solo over Akegua's walking bass line. He gets some great racing lines and rhythmic figure ideas on acoustic piano here. Harold builds off some triplet ideas, uh, riffs into double time runs. He finds some nice melodic phrases, little pauses. Uh, and then next bass and drums trade off fours, and then they swing through the melody once more. Track 10 is called Robot Etude. Indeed, a robotic melody line of even eighth notes in trumpet, bass, and piano starts out and Cruz mixes it up underneath and between the phrases. Uh, It breaks into some dense piano chords and a new section. The pulse disappears and Perdomo meets out uh, chords kind of reservedly into a new space. Uh, Keguo and Cruz come back to add a new Latin feel. Perdomo works through the thick harmonic landscape uh, with some very cool modal improvisations, uh, and finishes with some chiming right-hand notes. Keguo then takes a solo on bass, with Perdomo marking out the harmonies lightly underneath. Uh, Cruz is in there with light cymbals. Keguo keeps a rhythmic pulse going through uh, his melodies. Finally, Harold comes in next with some modal improvisations over these now alternating chords. Uh, It sounds like it's focusing around double harmonic major scale based ideas. Uh, You can hear that uh, flat second and sixth uh, in there. This is a very cool scale, sometimes called like a gypsy scale. It doesn't work well over any kind of Western cadences so uh, it kind of seems to fit best between these kind of alternating modal chords and uh, Harold just continues this on to the end uh, finishing with some soft intervals kind of interesting harmonic piece (laughs) with robotics uh, there we're gonna finish up with uh, love tide Uh, and this is got kind of a samba feel with a lot of forward motion, both in the rhythm and in the tumbling melodic figures uh, that Harold's written into the melody. Uh, Cruz keeps it really floating with light and tight drumming, and Akeguo has tight forward pushing bass figures. Uh, Harold just breezes over the beat in his solo, uh, lyrical but snappily rhythmic phrases. And then Perdomo has a lot of rhythmic excitement uh, in his piano solo, both hands doing interesting things uh, adding punchy two-handed chord figures as well. Keeps the chord punches flying with some gaps for Cruz to do some tasty drumming around the kit. And then they come back to the melody for another run through. And Harrell has some uh, more free-floating time with joyful improvisations at the end. More melodic ideas. A little nod to uh, Charlie Parker in there as well. And Cruz closes it out with uh, some final drum flashes. So another challenging and interesting but enjoyable uh, set of compositions from Tom Harrell. And as I said, he's uh, just on his own here over the trio, no other horns or instruments. uh, So uh, he sounds up to the challenge, playing vigorously, always playing lines that sound like they're composed. Uh, dismantling and finding interesting trajectories through all of the chord changes and challenging harmonic ideas that he's composed, always with a lot of uh, lyricism. Uh, I really like Perdomo as a pianist here. He meets the kind of uh you know standard you need if you're going to solo after tom harrow you really need to, to play a solo that sounds <laughs> like you meant it uh and he does that and uh yeah okay go on cruise just make that solid uh, foundation and they give each tune a unique signature of a feel and yeah, it's a good release and i'm i'm really glad to see uh tom harrow's back uh, with a new recording that sounds really confident and creative as always
1: yeah, I was happy to hear it too. I wrote that it's an album for the sophisticated, and that's us, hmm. isn't it? So we are adult we'll music, are we not? This. We are. And uh, another nice thing about this is on the, this and Cyrus Chestnut, both on the High Note label. And those, I don't know where these uh, CDs are made, but they go very cheaply in Japan and Amazon Japan. So I was able to pick up both of them for. Uh, for two songs, <laughs> and for a song. note has say, always been know.
0: very reasonable, and uh, yeah. they don't tease with the releases. You know, they say it's coming up; it's going to be on yeah. this date, and you get the whole thing right on that date. Uh No teasing with you know one or two tracks. Uh, I found them to be a good label.
1: Managed to get them both for like sixteen hundred yen each, which yeah. is now twelve dollars in America. It's like almost, hey. almost nothing for a CD. That's that's fantastic. the way it should be.
0: I mean, if you can, it if be. you can listen Absolutely. to it for free on streaming. We want to support the artists and buy these. Both of these are going to be on my it, shelf. It, it's too. not just
1: I want to support the artist. I want to have the actual album because, as, as, as yeah, for yeah. me, the, for a lot of reasons, really, yeah. I really like having the uh, the thing. It's sort of a memory of the time
0: and sort of, um, yeah. you know. I want to have it too, but I don't want to spend too. forty dollars for. I know <laughs> It <Like, laughs> what's what's last week. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's a reasonable mm-hmm. price. It's a, they're a good good record label and. Uh, I have all of uh, Tom Harrell's releases on uh, this label, and uh, a lot of other artists too. On
1: high note, he's done a
0: lot of recordings. Yeah, of yeah. For I don't know how many now, six or seven, I think. Yeah, oh, so it's quite a bit. Yeah, so just enjoyable. Um, it was nice to come back to uh, U.S. jazz. I'm encouraged and inspired by all the cool jazz that's coming out of Europe and other places, mm-hmm. because uh, you know jazz has become international. But I'm happy that uh, there's uh, you know there's new jazz and good young upcoming artists in the U S but I'm happy to see that these sort of established elder statesmen of jazz are still going on strong with fresh ideas and still sort of carrying that torch uh, with creative ideas. Uh, And that uh, makes me happy as well.
1: Yeah, me too. We got to do more American jazz. Uh, You know, um, there's going to be a bit more this year, I think. So at least with the Charles Lloyd recordings, I think we should kind of go into those too. I really
0: love him. Yeah. We've got those two more to uh, look forward to. Anyway, I wonder who the other I think he hinted that uh it'll be uh, with different different other players. So, I I mean as much yeah, as I could cool. listen to <laughs> <laughs> endlessly <laughs> with him with Bill Frisell, uh, it'll be interesting yeah. to see what the other trios are.
1: And I think Bill Frisell and Thomas Morgan made a few duo recordings mm. too. I think I think it was Bill Frizzell. but Yeah they did two really famous ones so they're really good together as well it's, you know that was, a, that, was a, that was a pretty all three of these were really just magical i really liked all three Yeah. and right, uh yeah. in the classical area area era area i like the the renisky was the the one to have really that's and a the knockout other two one, were, yeah we're good yeah but the renisky was a knockout and you'll have to hear that
0: yeah you got to hear that and well yeah that clarinet if you like woodwinds i mean Collins is just yeah. magical. He's uh, right. sort of a Good Pied Piper sound. with the clarinet. He could lead you right. lead you astray with that luscious sound, especially the Basset clarinet. It's just yeah. so rich down there.
1: You can never have enough Mozart clarinet, uh, clarinet concerto in your life, I think. So next week we're getting back on the boat, I guess,
0: huh? We're going to go back on the boat because, uh, you know, it's like, uh, what do you want to eat? And uh, let's have Italian. <laughs> and uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, Next week, we're going to have an Italian program.
1: What do you want to hear? Let's hear Italian. That's what we're going to do next week.
0: So I don't know. You've got some Italian classical lined up, and I've got three recent uh, Italian jazz releases. I'm going through all the eras, except for contemporary. I don't have contemporary
1: this next week, but I've got close to contemporary.
0: I've got a really uh, inspiring uh, young Italian trumpet player. I've got a drum-led group. And I've got some vibes, too. So, this should be a, a nice mixture of things. Yep. It's going to be an Italian
1: explosion. with that tomato sauce everywhere. Oh, my gosh! Speaking of <laughs> What's which, gonna we're going
0: to have to have some uh, sausage and peppers again together soon. So,
1: Yeah, let's uh, do it. Yeah. Just pick a date. I'm yeah. ready.
0: All right. Well, thanks for uh, sticking with us here to the end of episode 73 on Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Thanks again to... Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And thanks to all the listeners who helped us uh, get over that 10,000 download mark uh, this month. We appreciate that. Please do like, subscribe, leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, come check us out on Facebook where uh, tomorrow I'll also have the new playlist for next week's episode of Italian Music. You can check that out right away uh, after you hear this podcast. That'll be on Deezer and Facebook uh, only and if you want to get in touch with us leave us a message or comment on Facebook or write to us directly by email Podcast, all one word at gmail.com and until next week Mike keep listening yeah and uh, we'll see you again for some uh, new Italian flavors next week mm,
1: like like those rainbow Italian ices Yeah, uh, we'll see you again next time